Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 31 of The Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 31 English and French. The hour having come, they went with their four lackeys to a spot behind the Luxembourg given up to the feeding of goats. Athos threw a piece of money to the goatkeeper to withdraw. The lackeys were ordered to act as sentinels. A silent party soon drew near to the same enclosure, entered, and joined the musketeers. Then, according to foreign custom, the presentations took place. The Englishmen were all men of rank. Consequently, the odd names of their adversaries were for them not only a matter of surprise, but of annoyance. "'But, after all,' said Lord de Winter, when the three friends had been named, "'we do not know who you are. We cannot fight with such names.' They are names of shepherds. Therefore your lordship may suppose they are only assumed names, said Athos. Which only gives us a greater desire to know the real ones, replied the Englishman. You played very willingly with us without knowing our names, said Athos, by the same token that you won our horses. That is true, but we then only risked our pistoles. This time we risk our blood. One plays with anybody, but one fights only with equals. "'And that is but just,' said Athos, and he took aside the one of the four Englishmen with whom he was to fight, and communicated his name in a low voice. Porthos and Aramis did the same. "'Does that satisfy you?' said Athos to his adversary. "'Do you find me of sufficient rank to do me the honour of crossing swords with me?' "'Yes, monsieur.' said the Englishman, bowing. "'Well, now shall I tell you something?' added Athos, coolly. "'What?' replied the Englishman. "'Why, that is that you would have acted much more wisely if you had not required me to make myself known.' "'Why so?' "'Because I am believed to be dead, and have reasons for wishing nobody to know I am living.' so that I shall be obliged to kill you to prevent my secret from roaming over the fields. The Englishman looked at Athos, believing that he jested, but Athos did not jest the least in the world. Gentlemen, said Athos, addressing at the same time his companions and their adversaries, are we ready? Yes, answered the Englishman and the Frenchman, as with one voice. On guard, then, cried Athos. Immediately eight swords glittered in the rays of the setting sun, and the combat began with an animosity very natural between men twice enemies. Athos fenced with as much calmness and method as if he had been practising in a fencing school. Porthos, abated, no doubt, of his too great confidence by his adventure of Chantilly, played with skill and prudence. 
Aramis, who had the third canto of his poem to finish, behaved like a man in haste. Athos killed his adversary first. He hit him but once, but as he had foretold, that hit was a mortal one. The sword pierced his heart. Second, Porthos stretched his upon the grass with a wound through his thigh. As the Englishman, without making any further resistance, then surrendered his sword, Porthos took him up in his arms and bore him to his carriage. Aramis pushed his so vigorously that after going back fifty paces, the man ended by fairly taking to his heels, and disappeared amid the hooting of the lackeys. As to D'Artagnan, he fought purely and simply on the defensive, and when he saw his adversary pretty well fatigued, with a vigorous side-thrust sent his sword flying. The baron, finding himself disarmed, took two or three steps back, but in this movement his foot slipped, and he fell backward. D'Artagnan was over him at a bound, and said to the Englishman, pointing his sword to his throat, "'I could kill you, my lord. You are completely in my hands. But I spare your life for the sake of your sister.' D'Artagnan was at the height of joy. He had realized the plan he had imagined beforehand, whose picturing had produced the smiles we noted upon his face. The Englishman, delighted at having to do with a gentleman of such a kind disposition, pressed D'Artagnan in his arms, and paid a thousand compliments to the three musketeers, and as Porthos's adversary was already installed in the carriage, and as Aramis's had taken to his heels, there was nothing to think about but the dead. As Porthos and Aramis were undressing him, in the hope of finding his wound not mortal, a large purse dropped from his clothes. D'Artagnan picked it up and offered it to Lord de Winter. "'What the devil would you have me do with that?' said the Englishman. "'You can restore it to his family,' said D'Artagnan. "'His family will care about such a trifle as that. His family will inherit fifteen thousand louis a year from him. Keep the purse for your lackeys.' D'Artagnan put the purse into his pocket. "'And now, my young friend, for you will permit me, I hope, to give you that name,' said Lord de Winter. On this very evening, if agreeable to you, I will present you to my sister, Milady Cleric, for I am desirous that she should take you into her good graces, and as she is not in bad odour at court, she may perhaps on some future day speak a word that will not prove useless to you. D'Artagnan blushed with pleasure, and bowed a sign of assent. At this time Athos came up to D'Artagnan. "'What do you mean to do with that purse?' whispered he. "'Why, I meant to pass it over to you, my dear Athos.' "'Me? Why to me?' "'Why, you killed him. They are the spoils of victory.' "'I, the heir of an enemy,' said Athos. "'For whom, then, do you take me?' "'It is the custom in war,' said D'Artagnan. "'Why should it not be the custom in a duel?' "'Even on the field of battle I have never done that.' Porthos shrugged his shoulders. Aramis, by a movement of his lips, endorsed Athos. "'Then,' said D'Artagnan, "'let us give the money to the lackeys, as Lord de Winter desired us to do.' "'Yes,' said Athos, "'let us give the money to the lackeys. Not to our lackeys, but to the lackeys of the Englishmen.' Athos took the purse and threw it into the hand of the coachman. "'For you and your comrades.' 
This greatness of spirit in a man who was quite destitute struck even Porthos, and this French generosity, repeated by Lord de Winter and his friend, was highly applauded, except by Messieurs Grimaud, Bazin, Mousqueton, and Planchet. Lord de Winter, on quitting D'Artagnan, gave him his sister's address. She lived in the Place Royale, then the fashionable quarter, at number six, and he undertook to call and take D'Artagnan with him in order to introduce him. D'Artagnan appointed eight o'clock at Athos's residence. This introduction to Milady Cleric occupied the head of our Gascon greatly. He remembered in what a strange manner this woman had hitherto been mixed up in his destiny. According to his conviction, she was some creature of the cardinal, and yet he felt himself invincibly drawn toward her by one of those sentiments for which we cannot account. His only fear was that Milady would recognize in him the man of Meung and of Dover. Then she knew that he was one of the friends of Monsieur de Treville, and consequently that he belonged body and soul to the king, which would make him lose a part of his advantage, since when known to Milady as he knew her, he played only an equal game with her. As to the commencement of an intrigue between her and Monsieur de Ward, our presumptuous hero gave but little heed to that, although the Marquis was young, handsome, rich, and high in the Cardinal's favour. It is not for nothing we are but twenty years old, above all, if we were born at Tarbes. D'Artagnan began by making his most splendid toilet, then returned to Athos's, and, according to custom, related everything to him. Athos listened to his projects, then shook his head, and recommended prudence to him with a shade of bitterness. What, said he, you have just lost one woman whom you call good, charming, perfect, and here you are, running headlong after another. D'Artagnan felt the truth of this reproach. I loved Madame Bonacieux with my heart, while I only loved Milady with my head, said he. In getting introduced to her, my principal object is to ascertain what part she plays at court. The part she plays, pardieu! It is not difficult to divine that, after all you have told me. She is some emissary of the cardinal, a woman who will draw you into a snare in which you will leave your head. The devil! My dear Athos, you view things on the dark side, methinks. My dear fellow, I mistrust women. Can it be otherwise? I bought my experience dearly, particularly fair women. Milady is fair, you say. She has the most beautiful light hair imaginable. Ah, my poor D'Artagnan, said Athos. Listen to me. I want to be enlightened on a subject. Then, when I shall have learned what I desire to know, I will withdraw. Be enlightened, said Athos phlegmatically. Lord de Winter arrived at the appointed time, but Athos, being warned of his coming, went into the other chamber. He therefore found D'Artagnan alone, and as it was nearly eight o'clock, he took the young man with him. An elegant carriage waited below, and as it was drawn by two excellent horses, they were soon at the Place Royale. Milady Cleric received D'Artagnan ceremoniously. Her hotel was remarkably sumptuous, and while the most part of the English had quit, or were about to quit, France on account of the war, Milady had just been laying out much money upon her residence, 
which proved that the general measure which drove the English from France did not affect her. "'You see,' said Lord de Winter, presenting D'Artagnan to his sister, "'a young gentleman who has held my life in his hands, and who has not abused his advantage, although we have been twice enemies, although it was I who insulted him, and although I am an Englishman. Thank him, then, madame, if you have any affection for me.' Milady frowned slightly, a scarcely visible cloud passed over her brow, and so peculiar a smile appeared upon her lips that the young man, who saw and observed this triple shade, almost shuddered at it. The brother did not perceive this. He had turned round to play with Milady's favourite monkey, which had pulled him by the doublet. "'You are welcome, monsieur.' said Milady in a voice whose singular sweetness contrasted with the symptoms of ill-humour which D'Artagnan had just remarked, you have to-day required eternal rights to my gratitude. The Englishman then turned round and described the combat without omitting a single detail. Milady listened with the greatest attention, and yet it was easily to be perceived, whatever effort she made to conceal her impressions, that this recital was not agreeable to her. The blood rose to her head, and her little foot worked with impatience beneath her robe. Lord de Winter perceived nothing of this. When he had finished, he went to a table upon which was a salver with Spanish wine and glasses. He filled two glasses, and by a sign invited D'Artagnan to drink. D'Artagnan knew it was considered disobliging by an Englishman to refuse to pledge him, he therefore drew near to the table and took the second glass. He did not, however, lose sight of Milady, and in a mirror he perceived the change that came over her face. Now that she believed herself to be no longer observed, a sentiment resembling ferocity animated her countenance. She bit her handkerchief with her beautiful teeth. That pretty little soubrette, whom D'Artagnan had already observed, then came in. She spoke some words to Lord de Winter in English, who thereupon requested D'Artagnan's permission to retire, excusing himself on account of the urgency of the business that had called him away, and charging his sister to obtain his pardon. D'Artagnan exchanged a shake of the hand with Lord de Winter, and then returned to Milady. Her countenance, with surprising mobility, had recovered its gracious expression but some little red spots on her handkerchief indicated that she had bitten her lips till the blood came. Those lips were magnificent, they might be said to be of coral. The conversation took a cheerful turn. Milady appeared to have entirely recovered. She told D'Artagnan that Lord de Winter was her brother-in-law, and not her brother. She had married a younger brother of the family, who had left her a widow with one child. This child was the only heir to Lord de Winter, if Lord de Winter did not marry. All this showed D'Artagnan that there was a veil which concealed something, but he could not yet see under this veil. In addition to this, after a half-hour's conversation, D'Artagnan was convinced that Milady was his compatriot. She spoke French with an elegance and a purity that left no doubt on that head. D'Artagnan was profuse in gallant speeches and protestations of devotion. To all the simple things which escaped our Gascon, Milady replied with a smile of kindness. The hour came for him to retire. D'Artagnan took leave of Milady, 
and left the saloon the happiest of men. On the staircase he met the pretty soubrette, who brushed gently against him as she passed, and then, blushing to the eyes, asked his pardon for having touched him, in a voice so sweet that the pardon was granted instantly. D'Artagnan came again on the morrow, and was still better received than on the evening before. Lord de Winter was not at home, and it was Milady who this time did all the honours of the evening. She appeared to take a great interest in him, asked him whence he came, who were his friends, and whether he had not sometimes thought of attaching himself to the cardinal. D'Artagnan, who, as we have said, was exceedingly prudent for a young man of twenty, then remembered his suspicions regarding Milady. He launched into a eulogy of his eminence, and said that he should not have failed to enter into the guards of the cardinal instead of the king's guards, if he had happened to know Monsieur de Cavois instead of Monsieur de Treville. Milady changed the conversation without any appearance of affectation, and asked D'Artagnan in the most careless manner possible if he had ever been in England. D'Artagnan replied that he had been sent thither by M. de Treville to treat for a supply of horses, and that he had brought back four as specimens. Milady, in the course of the conversation, twice or thrice bit her lips. She had to deal with a Gascon who played close. At the same hour as on the preceding evening, D'Artagnan retired. In the corridor, he again met the pretty Kitty, that was the name of the soubrette. She looked at him with an expression of kindness which it was impossible to mistake, but D'Artagnan was so preoccupied by the mistress that he noticed absolutely nothing but her. D'Artagnan came again on the morrow, and the day after that, and each day Milady gave him a more gracious reception. Every evening, either in the antechamber, the corridor, or on the stairs, he met the pretty soubrette. But, as we have said, D'Artagnan paid no attention to this persistence of poor Kitty. End of chapter Chapter 32 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 32 A Procurator's Dinner However brilliant had been the part played by Porthos in the duel, it had not made him forget the dinner of the procurator's wife. On the morrow he received the last touches of Mousqueton's brush for an hour, and took his way toward the Rue aux Ours with the steps of a man who was doubly in favour with fortune. His heart beat, but not like D'Artagnan's with a young and impatient love. No, a more material interest stirred his blood. He was about to at last to pass that mysterious threshold, to climb those unknown stairs by which, one by one, the old crowns of Monsieur Coquenard had ascended. He was about to see in reality a certain coffer of which he had twenty times beheld the image in his dreams, a coffer long and deep, locked, bolted, fastened in the wall, a coffer of which he had so often heard, and which the hands, a little wrinkled, it is true, but still not without elegance, 
of the procurator's wife, were about to open to his admiring looks. And then he, a wanderer on the earth, a man without fortune, a man without family, a soldier accustomed to inns, cabarets, taverns, and restaurants, a lover of wine forced to depend upon chance treats, was about to partake of family meals, to enjoy the pleasures of a comfortable establishment, and to give himself up to those little attentions which, the harder one is, the more they please, as old soldiers say. To come in the capacity of a cousin, and seat himself every day at a good table, to smooth the yellow, wrinkled brow of the old procurator, to pluck the clerks a little by teaching them Basset, Pasdis, and Lonsconet in their utmost nicety, and winning from them, by way of fee for the lesson he would give them in an hour, their savings of a month, all this was enormously delightful to Porthos. The musketeer could not forget the evil reports which then prevailed, and which indeed have survived them, of the procurators of the period. Meanness, stinginess, fasts. But as, after all, excepting some few acts of economy which Porthos had always found very unseasonable, the procurator's wife had been tolerably liberal, that is, be it understood for a procurator's wife, he hoped to see a household of a highly comfortable kind. And yet, at the very door the musketeer began to entertain some doubts. The approach was not such as to prepossess people. An ill-smelling, dark passage, a staircase half-lighted by bars through which stole a glimmer from a neighbouring yard, on the first floor a low door studded with enormous nails, like the principal gate of the Grand Châtelet. Porthos knocked with his hand. A tall, pale clerk, his face shaded by a forest of virgin hair, opened the door, and bowed with the air of a man forced at once to respect in another lofty stature, which indicated strength, the military dress, which indicated rank, and a ruddy countenance, which indicated familiarity with good living. A shorter clerk came behind the first, a taller clerk behind the second, a stripling of a dozen years rising behind the third, in all three clerks and a half, which for the time argued a very extensive clientage. Although the musketeer was not expected before one o'clock, the procurator's wife had been on the watch ever since midday, reckoning that the heart, or perhaps the stomach, of her lover would bring him before his time. Madame Coquenard therefore entered the office from the house at the same moment her guest entered from the stairs, and the appearance of the worthy lady relieved him from an awkward embarrassment. The clerk surveyed him with great curiosity, and he, not knowing well what to say to this ascending and descending scale, remained tongue-tied. "'It is my cousin,' cried the procurator's wife. "'Come in, come in, Monsieur Porthos.' The name of Porthos produced its effect upon the clerks, who began to laugh. But Porthos turned sharply round, and every countenance quickly recovered its gravity. They reached the office of the procurator after having passed through the antechamber in which the clerks were, and the study in which they ought to have been. This last apartment was a sort of dark room, littered with papers. On quitting the study they left the kitchen on the right, and entered the reception room. All these rooms, which communicated with one another, did not inspire Porthos favourably. 
words might be heard at a distance through all these open doors. Then, while passing, he had cast a rapid, investigating glance into the kitchen, and he was obliged to confess to himself, to the shame of the procurator's wife and his own regret, that he did not see that fire, that animation, that bustle, which, when a good repast is on foot, prevails generally in that sanctuary of good living. The procurator had, without doubt, been warned of his visit, as he expressed no surprise at the sight of Porthos, who advanced toward him with a sufficiently easy air, and saluted him courteously. Eh, "'We are cousins, it appears, Monsieur Porthos,' said the procurator, rising, yet supporting his weight upon the arms of his cane chair. The old man, wrapped in a large black doublet, in which the whole of his slender body was concealed, was brisk and dry. His little grey eyes shone like carbuncles, and appeared, with his grinning mouth, to be the only part of his face in which life survived. Unfortunately, the legs began to refuse their service to this bony machine. During the last five or six months that this weakness had been felt, the worthy procurator had nearly become the slave of his wife. The cousin was received with resignation, that was all. Monsieur Coquenard, firm upon his legs, would have declined all relationship with Monsieur Porthos. "'Yes, monsieur, we are cousins,' said Porthos, without being disconcerted, as he had never reckoned upon being received enthusiastically by the husband. "'By the female side, I believe,' said the procurator maliciously. Porthos did not feel the ridicule of this, and took it for a piece of simplicity, at which he laughed in his large moustache. Madame Coquenard, who knew that a simple-minded procurator was a very rare variety in the species, smiled a little, and coloured a great deal. Monsieur Coquenard had, since the arrival of Porthos, frequently cast his eyes with great uneasiness upon a large chest placed in front of his oak desk. Porthos comprehended that this chest, although it did not correspond in shape with that which he had seen in his dreams, must be the blessed coffer, and he congratulated himself that the reality was several feet higher than the dream. Monsieur Coquenard did not carry his genealogical investigations any further, but withdrawing his anxious look from the chest, and fixing it upon Porthos, he contented himself with saying, "'Monsieur, our cousin, will do us the favour of dining with us once before his departure for the campaign. Will he not, Madame Coquenard?' This time Porthos received the blow right in his stomach, and felt it. It appeared likewise that Madame Coquenard was not less affected by it on her part, for she added, "'My cousin will not return if he finds that we do not treat him kindly.' but otherwise he has so little time to pass in Paris, and consequently to spare to us, that we must entreat him to give us every instant he can call his own previous to his departure. "'Oh, my legs, my poor legs, where are you?' murmured Coquenard, and he tried to smile. This succour, which came to Porthos at the moment in which he was attacked in his gastronomic hopes, inspired much gratitude in the musketeer toward the procurator's wife. The hour of dinner soon arrived. They passed into the eating-room, a large dark room, situated opposite the kitchen. 
The clerks, who, as it appeared, had smelled unusual perfumes in the house, were of military punctuality, and held their stools in hand quite ready to sit down. Their jaws moved preliminarily with fearful threatenings. "'Indeed!' thought Porthos, casting a glance at the three hungry clerks, for the errand-boy, as might be expected, was not admitted to the honours of the magisterial table. "'In my cousin's place I would not keep such gourmands. They look like shipwrecked sailors who have not eaten for six weeks.' Monsieur Coquenard entered, pushed along upon his armchair with casters by Madame Coquenard, whom Porthos assisted in rolling her husband up to the table. He had scarcely entered when he began to agitate his nose and his jaws after the example of his clerks. "'Oh, oh!' said he. "'Here is a soup which is rather inviting.' "'What the devil can they smell so extraordinary in this soup?' thought Porthos, at the sight of a pale liquid, abundant but entirely free from meat on the surface of which a few crusts swam about as rare as the islands of an archipelago. Madame Coquenard smiled, and upon a sign from her everyone eagerly took his seat. Monsieur Coquenard was served first, then Porthos. Afterward Madame Coquenard filled her own plate, and distributed the crusts without soup to the impatient clerks. At this moment the door of the dining-room unclosed with a creak, and Porthos perceived through the half-open flap the little clerk who, not being allowed to take part in the feast, ate his dry bread in the passage with the double odour of the dining-room and kitchen. After the soup the maid brought a boiled fowl, a piece of magnificence which caused the eyes of the diners to dilate in such a manner that they seemed ready to burst. "'One may see that you love your family, Madame Coquenard,' said the procurator, with a smile that was almost tragic. "'You are certainly treating your cousin very handsomely.' The poor fowl was thin, and covered with one of those thick, bristly skins through which the teeth cannot penetrate with all their efforts. The fowl must have been sought for a long time on the perch, to which it had retired to die of old age. "'The devil!' thought Porthos. "'This is poor work.' I respect old age, but I don't much like it boiled or roasted. And he looked round to see if anybody partook of his opinion, but on the contrary he saw nothing but eager eyes which were devouring, in anticipation, that sublime fowl which was the object of his contempt. Madame Coquenard drew the dish toward her, skilfully detached the two great black feet, which she placed upon her husband's plate, cut off the neck, which with the head she put on one side for herself, raised the wing for Porthos, and then returned the bird otherwise intact to the servant who had brought it in, who disappeared with it before the musketeer had time to examine the variations which disappointment produces upon faces, according to the characters and temperaments of those who experience it. In the place of the fowl a dish of haricot beans made its appearance, an enormous dish in which some bones of mutton that at first sight one might have believed to have had some meat on them pretended to show themselves. But the clerks were not the dupes of this deceit, and their lugubrious looks settled down into resigned countenances. Madame Coquenard distributed this dish to the young men with the moderation of a good housewife. The time for wine came. Monsieur Coquenard, 
poured from a very small stone bottle, the third of a glass for each of the young men, served himself in about the same proportion, and passed the bottle to Porthos and Madame Coquenard. The young men filled up their third of a glass with water. Then, when they had drunk half the glass, they filled it up again, and continued to do so. This brought them, by the end of the repast, to swallowing a drink which, from the colour of the ruby, had passed to that of a pale topaz. Porthos ate his wing of the fowl timidly, and shuddered when he felt the knee of the procurator's wife under the table, as it came in search of his. He also drank half a glass of this sparingly served wine, and found it to be nothing but that horrible Montreuil, the terror of all expert palates. Monsieur Coquenard saw him swallowing this wine undiluted, and sighed deeply. "'Will you eat any of these beans, cousin Porthos?' said Madame Coquenard, in that tone which says, "'Take my advice, don't touch them.' "'Devil, take me if I taste one of them,' murmured Porthos to himself, and then said aloud, "'Thank you, my cousin, I am no longer hungry.' There was silence. Porthos could hardly keep his countenance. The procurator repeated several times, "'Ah, Madame Coquenard, accept my compliments. Your dinner has been a real feast. Lord, how I have eaten!' Monsieur Coquenard had eaten his soup, the black feet of the fowl, and the only mutton-bone on which there was the least appearance of meat. Porthos fancied they were mystifying him, and began to curl his moustache and knit his eyebrows, but the knee of Madame Coquenard gently advised him to be patient. This silence and this interruption in serving, which were unintelligible to Porthos, had, on the contrary, a terrible meaning for the clerks. Upon a look from the procurator, accompanied by a smile from Madame Coquenard, they arose slowly from the table, folded their napkins more slowly still, bowed, and retired. "'Go, young men, go and promote digestion by working,' said the procurator gravely. The clerks gone, Madame Coquenard rose and took from a buffet a piece of cheese, some preserved quinces, and a cake which she had herself made of almonds and honey. Monsieur Coquenard knit his eyebrows because there were too many good things. Porthos bit his lips because he saw not the wherewithal to dine. He looked to see if the dish of beans were still there. The dish of beans had disappeared. "'A positive feast!' cried Monsieur Coquenard, turning about in his chair. "'A real feast! Epoche epulorum! Lucullus dines with Lucullus!' Porthos looked at the bottle which was near him, and hoped that, with wine, bread, and cheese, he might make a dinner. But wine was wanting, the bottle was empty. Monsieur and Madame Coquenard did not seem to observe it. "'This is fine,' said Porthos to himself. "'I am prettily caught.' He passed his tongue over a spoonful of preserves, and stuck his teeth into the sticky pastry of Madame Coquenard. "'Now,' said he, the sacrifice is consummated. Ah, if I had not the hope of peeping with Madame Coquenard into her husband's chest! Monsieur Coquenard, after the luxuries of such a repast, 
which he called an excess, felt the want of a siesta. Porthos began to hope that the thing would take place at the present sitting, and in that same locality. But the procurator would listen to nothing, he would be taken to his room, and was not satisfied until he was close to his chest, upon the edge of which, for still greater precaution, he placed his feet. The procurator's wife took Porthos into an adjoining room, and they began to lay the basis of a reconciliation. "'You can come and dine three times a week,' said Madame Coquenard. "'Thanks, Madame,' said Porthos. "'But I don't like to abuse your kindness. Besides, I must think of my outfit.' "'That's true,' said the procurator's wife, groaning. "'That unfortunate outfit.' "'Alas, yes,' said Porthos. "'It is so.' "'But of what, then, does the equipment of your company consist, Monsieur Porthos?' "'Oh, of many things,' said Porthos. "'The musketeers are, as you know, picked soldiers, and they require many things useless to the guardsmen or the Swiss.' "'But yet detail them to me.' "'Why, they may amount to—' said Porthos, who preferred discussing the total to taking them one by one. The procurator's wife waited tremblingly. "'To how much?' said she. "'I hope it does not exceed—' She stopped. Speech failed her. "'Oh, no,' said Porthos. "'It does not exceed two thousand five hundred livres. I even think that with economy I could manage it with two thousand livres.' "'Good God!' cried she. Two thousand livres? Why, that is a fortune! Porthos made a most significant grimace. Madame Coquenard understood it. I wish to know the detail, said she, because, having many relatives in business, I was almost sure of obtaining things at a hundred percent less than you would pay yourself. Ah, ah, said Porthos, that is what you meant to say. "'Yes, dear Monsieur Porthos. Thus, for instance, don't you in the first place want a horse?' "'Yes, a horse.' "'Well, then, I can just suit you.' "'Ah!' said Porthos, brightening. "'That's well as regards my horse, but I must have the appointments complete, as they include objects which a musketeer alone can purchase, and which will not amount, besides, to more than three hundred livres.' Three hundred livres. Then put down three hundred livres, said the procurator's wife, with a sigh. Porthos smiled. It may be remembered that he had the saddle which came from Buckingham. These three hundred livres he reckoned upon putting snugly into his pocket. Then, continued he, there is a horse for my lackey, and my valise. As to my arms, it is useless to trouble you about them. I have them. "'A horse for your lackey?' resumed the procurator's wife, hesitatingly. "'But that is doing things in lordly style, my friend.' "'Ah, madame,' said Porthos haughtily, "'do you take me for a beggar?' "'No. I only thought that a pretty mule makes sometimes as good an appearance as a horse. And it appears to me that by getting a pretty mule for Mousqueton—' "'Well, agreed for a pretty mule.' said Porthos. You are right. I have seen very great Spanish nobles whose whole suite were mounted on mules. But then you understand, Madame Coquenard, 
a mule with feathers and bells. Be satisfied, said the procurator's wife. There remains the valise, added Porthos. Oh, don't let that disturb you, cried Madame Coquenard. My husband has five or six valises. You shall choose the best. There is one in particular which he prefers in his journeys, large enough to hold all the world. Your valise is then empty? asked Porthos, with simplicity. Certainly it is empty, replied the procurator's wife, in real innocence. Ah, but the valise I want, cried Porthos, is a well-filled one, my dear. Madame uttered fresh sighs. Moliere had not written his scene in Lavar then. Madame Coquenard was in the dilemma of Harpagen. Finally, the rest of the equipment was successively debated in the same manner, and the result of the sitting was that the procurator's wife should give eight hundred livres in money, and should furnish the horse and the mule, which should have the honour of carrying Porthos and Mousqueton to glory. These conditions being agreed to, Porthos took leave of Madame Coquenard. The latter wished to detain him by darting certain tender glances, but Porthos urged the commands of duty, and the procurator's wife was obliged to give place to the king. The musketeer returned home hungry and in bad humour. End of chapter Chapter 23 of The Three Musketeers this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 33 Soubrette and Mistress. Meantime, as we have said, despite the cries of his conscience and the wise counsels of Athos, D'Artagnan became hourly more in love with Milady. Thus he never failed to pay his diurnal court to her, and the self-satisfied Gascon was convinced that sooner or later she could not fail to respond. One day, when he arrived with his head in the air, and as light at heart as a man who awaits a shower of gold, he found the soubrette under the gateway of the hotel. But this time the pretty Kitty was not contented with touching him as he passed, she took him gently by the hand. Good, thought D'Artagnan. She is charged with some message for me from her mistress. She is about to appoint some rendezvous of which she had not courage to speak. And he looked down at the pretty girl with the most triumphant air imaginable. I wish to say three words to you, Monsieur Chevalier, stammered the soubrette. Speak, my child, speak, said D'Artagnan. I listen. Here? impossible that which i have to say is too long and above all too secret well what is to be done if monsieur chevalier will follow me said kitty timidly where you please my dear child come then and kitty who had not let go the hand of d'artagnan led him up a little dark winding staircase and after ascending about fifteen steps opened a door "'Come in here, Monsieur Chevalier,' said she. "'Here we shall be alone, and can talk.' "'And whose room is this, my dear child?' "'It is mine, Monsieur Chevalier. 
it communicates with my mistresses by that door. But you need not fear. She will not hear what we say. She never goes to bed before midnight. D'Artagnan cast a glance around him. The little apartment was charming for its taste and neatness, but in spite of himself his eyes were directed to that door which Kitty said led to Milady's chamber. Kitty guessed what was going on in the mind of the young man, and heaved a deep sigh. "'You love my mistress, then, very dearly, Monsieur Chevalier?' said she. "'Oh, more than I can say, Kitty. I am mad for her.' Kitty breathed a second sigh. "'Alas, monsieur,' said she, "'that is too bad.' "'What the devil do you see so bad in it?' said D'Artagnan. "'Because, monsieur,' replied Kitty, "'my mistress loves you not at all.' "'Hein!' said D'Artagnan. "'Can she have charged you to tell me so?' "'Oh, no, monsieur, but out of the regard I have for you, I have taken the resolution to tell you so.' much obliged my dear kitty but for the intention only for the information you must agree is not likely to be at all agreeable that is to say you don't believe what i have told you is it not so we have always some difficulty in believing such things my pretty dear were it only from self-love then you don't believe me i confess that unless you deign to give me some proof of what you advance what do you think of this kitty drew a little note from her bosom for me said d'artagnan seizing the letter no for another for another yes his name his name cried d'artagnan read the address monsieur el comte de ward the remembrance of the scene at saint germain presented itself to the mind of the presumptuous gascon as quick as thought he tore open the letter in spite of the cry which kitty uttered on seeing what he was going to do or rather what he was doing oh good lord monsieur chevalier said she what are you doing i said d'artagnan nothing and he read you have not answered my first note are you indisposed or have you forgotten the glances you favoured me with at the ball of madame de guise you have an opportunity now, Count. Do not allow it to escape. D'Artagnan became very pale. He was wounded in his self-love. He thought it was in his love. Poor dear Monsieur D'Artagnan, said Kitty in a voice full of compassion, and pressing anew the young man's hand. You pity me, little one, said D'Artagnan. Oh, yes, and with all my heart for i know what it is to be in love you know what it is to be in love said d'artagnan looking at her for the first time with much attention alas yes well then instead of pitying me you would do much better to assist me in avenging myself on your mistress and what sort of revenge would you take i would triumph over her and supplant my rival i will never help you in that monsieur chevalier said kitty warmly and why not demanded d'artagnan for two reasons what ones the first is that my mistress will never love you how do you know that you have cut her to the heart i in what can i have offended her 
I, who ever since I have known her, have lived at her feet like a slave. <laughs> Speak, I beg you. I will never confess that but to the man who should read to the bottom of my soul. D'Artagnan looked at Kitty for the second time. The young girl had freshness and beauty, which many duchesses would have purchased with their coronets. Kitty, said he, I will read to the bottom of your soul whenever you like. Don't let that disturb you. And he gave her a kiss at which the poor girl became as red as a cherry. Oh, no, said Kitty. It is not me you love. It is my mistress you love. You told me so just now. And does that hinder you from letting me know the second reason? The second reason, Monsieur the Chevalier, replied Kitty, emboldened by the kiss in the first place, and still further by the expression of the eyes of the young man, is that in love, every one for herself. Then only D'Artagnan remembered the languishing glances of Kitty, her constantly meeting him in the antechamber, the corridor, or on the stairs, those touches of the hand every time she met him, and her deep sighs. But absorbed by his desire to please the great lady, he had disdained the soubrette. He whose game is the eagle takes no heed of the sparrow. But this time our Gascon saw at a glance all the advantage to be derived from the love which Kitty had just confessed so innocently or so boldly. The interception of letters addressed to the Comte de Ward, news on the spot, entrance at all hours into Kitty's chamber, which was contiguous to her mistress's. The perfidious deceiver was, as may plainly be perceived, already sacrificing in intention the poor girl in order to obtain milady willy-nilly. "'Well,' said he to the young girl, "'are you willing, my dear Kitty, that I should give you a proof of that love which you doubt?' "'What love?' asked the young girl. "'Of that which I am ready to feel toward you?' <laughs> And what is that proof? Are you willing that I should this evening pass with you the time I generally spend with your mistress? Oh, yes, said Kitty, clapping her hands. Very willing. Well, then, come here, my dear, said D'Artagnan, establishing himself in an easy chair. Come, and let me tell you that you are the prettiest soubrette I ever saw. And he did tell her so much, and so well, that the poor girl, who asked nothing better than to believe him, did believe him. Nevertheless, to D'Artagnan's great astonishment, the pretty Kitty defended herself resolutely. Time passes quickly when it is passed in attacks and defences. Midnight sounded, and almost at the same time the bell was rung in Milady's chamber. "'Good God!' cried Kitty. "'There is my mistress calling me. Go, go directly!' D'Artagnan rose, took his hat, as if it had been his intention to obey, then, opening quickly the door of a large closet instead of that leading to the staircase, he buried himself amid the robes and dressing-gowns of Milady. "'What are you doing?' cried Kitty. D'Artagnan, who had secured the key, shut himself up in the closet without reply. "'Well!' cried Milady in a sharp voice. Are you asleep that you don't answer when I ring? And D'Artagnan heard the door of communication opened violently. 
"'Here am I, milady. here am I,' cried Kitty, springing forward to meet her mistress. Both went into the bedroom, and as the door of communication remained open, D'Artagnan could hear milady for some time scolding her maid. She was at length appeased, and the conversation turned upon him while Kitty was assisting her mistress. "'Well,' said milady, "'I have not seen our Gascon this evening.' "'What, milady?' "'Has he not come?' said Kitty. "'Can he be inconstant before being happy?' "'Oh, no! He must have been prevented by Monsieur de Treville or Monsieur Dessessart. "'I understand my game, Kitty. I have this one safe.' "'What will you do with him, madame?' "'What will I do with him? <laughs> be easy, Kitty. There is something between that man and me that he is quite ignorant of.' He nearly made me lose my credit with his eminence. Oh, I will be revenged. I believed that Madame loved him. I love him? I detest him. An idiot, who held the life of Lord de Winter in his hands and did not kill him, by which I missed three hundred thousand livres' income. That's true, said Kitty. Your son was the only heir of his uncle and until his majority you would have had the enjoyment of his fortune. D'Artagnan shuddered to the marrow at hearing this suave creature reproach him, with that sharp voice which she took such pains to conceal in conversation, for not having killed a man whom he had seen load her with kindnesses. "'For all this,' continued Milady, "'I should long ago have revenged myself on him if, and I don't know why,' the cardinal had not requested me to conciliate him. Oh, yes, but madame has not conciliated that little woman he was so fond of. What, the mercer's wife of the Rue des Fossoyeurs? Has he not already forgotten she ever existed? Fine vengeance, that, on my faith! A cold sweat broke from D'Artagnan's brow. Why, this woman was a monster! He resumed his listening, but unfortunately the toilet was finished. "'That will do,' said Milady. "'Go into your own room, and tomorrow endeavour again to get me an answer to the letter I gave you.' "'For Monsieur de Ward?' said Kitty. "'To be sure, for Monsieur de Ward.' "'Now, there is one,' said Kitty, "'who appears to me quite a different sort of a man from that poor Monsieur d'Artagnan.' "'Go to bed, mademoiselle,' said Milady. "'I don't like comments.' D'Artagnan heard the door close, then the noise of two bolts by which Milady fastened herself in. On her side, but softly as possible, Kitty turned the key of the lock, and then D'Artagnan opened the closet door. "'Oh, good Lord!' said Kitty, in a low voice. "'What is the matter with you? How pale you are!' "'The abominable creature,' murmured D'Artagnan. "'Silence! Silence! Be gone!' said Kitty. "'There is nothing but a wainscot between my chamber and milady's. Every word that is uttered in one can be heard in the other.' "'That's exactly the reason I won't go,' said D'Artagnan. "'What?' said Kitty, blushing. "'Or, at least, I will go, later.' He drew Kitty to him. She had the less motive to resist. Resistance would make so much noise. Therefore Kitty surrendered. 
It was a moment of vengeance upon Milady. D'Artagnan believed it right to say that vengeance is the pleasure of the gods. With a little more heart he might have been contented with this new conquest. But the principal features of his character were ambition and pride. It must, however, be confessed in his justification that the first use he made of his influence over Kitty was to try and find out what had become of Madame Bonacieux. But the poor girl swore upon the crucifix to D'Artagnan that she was entirely ignorant on that head, her mistress never admitting her into half her secrets, only she believed she could say she was not dead. As to the cause which was near making Milady lose her credit with the cardinal, Kitty knew nothing about it. But this time D'Artagnan was better informed than she was. As he had seen Milady on board a vessel at the moment he was leaving England, he suspected that it was, almost without a doubt, on account of the diamond studs. But what was clearest in all this was that the true hatred, the profound hatred, the inveterate hatred of Milady, was increased by his not having killed her brother-in-law. D'Artagnan came the next day to Milady's, and finding her in a very ill humour, had no doubt that it was lack of an answer from Monsieur de Ward that provoked her thus. Kitty came in, but Milady was very cross with her. The poor girl ventured a glance at D'Artagnan, which said, "'See how I suffer on your account?' Toward the end of the evening, however, the beautiful lioness became milder. She smilingly listened to the soft speeches of D'Artagnan, and even gave him her hand to kiss. D'Artagnan departed, scarcely knowing what to think, but as he was a youth who did not easily lose his head, while continuing to pay his court to Milady, he had framed a little plan in his mind. He found Kitty at the gate, and, as on the preceding evening, went up to her chamber. Kitty had been accused of negligence and severely scolded. Milady could not at all comprehend the silence of the Comte de Ward, and she ordered Kitty to come at nine o'clock in the morning to take a third letter. D'Artagnan made Kitty promise to bring him that letter on the following morning. The poor girl promised all her lover desired. She was mad. Things passed as on the night before. D'Artagnan concealed himself in his closet. Milady called, undressed, sent away Kitty, and shut the door. As the night before, D'Artagnan did not return home till five o'clock in the morning. At eleven o'clock Kitty came to him. She held in her hand a fresh billet from Milady. This time the poor girl did not even argue with D'Artagnan. She gave it to him at once. She belonged body and soul to her handsome soldier. D'Artagnan opened the letter and read as follows. This is the third time I have written to you to tell you that I love you. Beware that I do not write to you a fourth time to tell you that I detest you. If you repent of the manner in which you have acted toward me, the young girl who brings you this will tell you how a man of spirit may obtain his pardon. D'Artagnan colored and grew pale several times in reading this billet. Oh, you love her still, said Kitty, who had not taken her eyes off the young man's countenance for an instant. No, Kitty, you are mistaken. I do not love her, but I will avenge myself for her contempt. Oh, yes, I know what sort of vengeance. You told me that. What matters it to you, Kitty? 
you know it is you alone whom I love. How can I know that? By the scorn I will throw upon her. D'Artagnan took a pen and wrote, Madame, until the present moment I could not believe that it was to me your first two letters were addressed. So unworthy did I feel myself of such an honour. Besides, I was so seriously indisposed that I could not in any case have replied to them. But now I am forced to believe in the excess of your kindness, since not only your letter but your servant assures me that I have the good fortune to be beloved by you. She has no occasion to teach me the way in which a man of spirit may obtain his pardon. I will come and ask mine at eleven o'clock this evening. To delay it a single day would be in my eyes now to commit a fresh offence. From him whom you have rendered the happiest of men, Comte de Ward. This note was in the first place a forgery. It was likewise an indelicacy. It was even, according to our present manners, something like an infamous action. But at that period people did not manage affairs as they do to-day. Besides, D'Artagnan from her own admission knew Milady culpable of treachery at matters more important, and could entertain no respect for her. And yet, notwithstanding this want of respect, he felt an uncontrollable passion for this woman boiling in his veins, passion drunk with contempt, but passion or thirst as the reader pleases. D'Artagnan's plan was very simple. By Kitty's chamber he could gain that of her mistress. He would take advantage of the first moment of surprise, shame, and terror to triumph over her. He might fail, but something must be left to chance. In eight days the campaign would open, and he would be compelled to leave Paris. D'Artagnan had no time for a prolonged love-siege. "'There,' said the young man, handing Kitty the letter sealed, "'give that to Milady.' It is the Count's reply. Poor Kitty became as pale as death. She suspected what the letter contained. "'Listen, my dear girl,' said D'Artagnan. "'You cannot but perceive that all this must end, some way or other. Milady may discover that you gave the first billet to my lackey instead of to the Count's, that it is I who have opened the others which ought to have been opened by de Wards.' Milady will then turn you out of doors, and you know she is not the woman to limit her vengeance. Alas, said Kitty, for whom have I exposed myself to all that? For me, I well know, my sweet girl, said D'Artagnan, but I am grateful, I swear to you. But what does this note contain? Milady will tell you. Ah, you do not love me, cried Kitty and I am very wretched. To this reproach there is always one response which deludes women. D'Artagnan replied in such a manner that Kitty remained in her great delusion. Although she cried freely before deciding to transmit the letter to her mistress, she did at last so decide, which was all D'Artagnan wished. Finally he promised that he would leave her mistress's presence at an early hour that evening, and that when he left the mistress he would ascend with the maid. This promise completed poor Kitty's consolation. End of chapter Chapter 34 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 34 In which the equipment of Aramis and Porthos is treated of. Since the four friends had been each in search of his equipments, there had been no fixed meeting between them. They dined apart from one another, wherever they might happen to be, and rather where they could. Duty likewise on its part took a portion of that precious time which was gliding away so rapidly. Only they had agreed to meet once a week, about one o'clock, at the residence of Athos, seeing that he, in agreement with the vow he had formed, did not pass over the threshold of his door. This day of reunion was the same day as that on which Kitty came to find D'Artagnan. Soon as Kitty left him, D'Artagnan directed his steps toward the Rue Ferru. He found Athos and Aramis philosophizing. Aramis had some slight inclination to resume the cassock. Athos, according to his system, neither encouraged or dissuaded him. Athos believed that everyone should be left to his own free will. He never gave advice but when it was asked, and even then he required to be asked twice. "'People in general,' he said, "'only ask advice not to follow it. Or if they do follow it, it is for the sake of having someone to blame for having given it.' Porthos arrived a minute after D'Artagnan. The four friends were reunited." The four countenances express four different feelings. That of Porthos, tranquillity. That of D'Artagnan, hope. That of Aramis, uneasiness. That of Athos, carelessness. At the end of a moment's conversation, in which Porthos hinted that a lady of elevated rank had condescended to relieve him from his embarrassment, Mousqueton entered. He came to request his master to return to his lodgings, where his presence was urgent, as he piteously said, "'Is it my equipment?' "'Yes and no,' replied Mousqueton. "'Well, but can't you speak?' "'Come, monsieur.' Porthos rose, saluted his friends, and followed Mousqueton. An instant after, Bazin made his appearance at the door. "'What do you want with me, my friend?' said Aramis, with that mildness of language which was very observable in him every time that his ideas were directed toward the church. "'A man wishes to see Monsieur at home,' replied Bazin. "'A man? What man?' "'A mendicant.' "'Give him alms, Bazin, and bid him pray for a poor sinner.' "'This mendicant insists upon speaking to you, and pretends that you will be very glad to see him.' "'Has he sent no particular message for me?' "'Yes. If Monsieur Aramis hesitates to come,' he said, "'tell him I am from Tours.' "'From Tours!' cried Aramis. "'A thousand pardons, gentlemen, but no doubt this man brings me the news I expected.' In rising also, he went off at a quick pace. There remained Athos and D'Artagnan. "'I believe these fellows have managed their business.' "'What do you think, D'Artagnan?' said Athos. "'I know that Porthos was in a fair way,' replied D'Artagnan. "'And as to Aramis, to tell you the truth, I have never been seriously uneasy on his account. But you, my dear Athos, you who so generously distributed the Englishman's pistoles, which were our legitimate property, 
What do you mean to do? I am satisfied with having killed that fellow, my boy, seeing that it is blessed bread to kill an Englishman. But if I had pocketed his pistoles, they would have weighed me down like a remorse. Go to, my dear Athos, you have truly inconceivable ideas. Let it pass. What do you think of Monsieur de Treville telling me, when he did me the honour to call upon me yesterday, that you associated with the suspected English whom the cardinal protects? That is to say, I visit an English woman, the one I named. Oh, I, the fair woman on whose account I gave you advice, which, naturally, you took care not to adopt. I gave you my reasons. Yes, you look there for your outfit, I think you said. Not at all. I have acquired certain knowledge that that woman was concerned in the abduction of Madame Bonacieux. Yes, I understand now. To find one woman, you court another. It is the longest road, but certainly the most amusing. D'Artagnan was on the point of telling Athos all, but one consideration restrained him. Athos was a gentleman, punctilious in points of honour, and there were, in the plan which our lover had devised for Milady, he was sure, certain things that would not obtain the assent of this Puritan. He was therefore silent, and as Athos was the least inquisitive of any man on earth, D'Artagnan's confidence stopped there. We will therefore leave the two friends, who had nothing important to say to each other, and follow Aramis. Upon being informed that the person who wanted to speak to him came from Tours, we have seen with what rapidity the young man followed, or rather went before Bazin. He ran without stopping from the Rue Ferru to the Rue de Vaugirard. On entering he found a man of short stature and intelligent eyes, but covered with rags. "'You have asked for me?' said the musketeer. "'I wish to speak with Monsieur Aramis. Is that your name, monsieur?' "'My very own. You have brought me something?' "'Yes, if you show me a certain embroidered handkerchief.' "'Here it is,' said Aramis, taking a small key from his breast and opening a little ebony box inlaid with mother-of-pearl. "'Here it is. Look.' "'That is right.' replied the mendicant. Dismiss your lackey. In fact, Bazin, curious to know what the mendicant could want with his master, kept pace with him as well as he could, and arrived almost at the same time he did. But his quickness was not of much use to him. At the hint from the mendicant his master made him a sign to retire, and he was obliged to obey. Bazin gone, the mendicant cast a rapid glance around him in order to be sure that nobody could either see or hear him, and opening his ragged vest, badly held together by a leather strap, he began to rip the upper part of his doublet, from which he drew a letter. Aramis uttered a cry of joy at the sight of the seal, kissed the superscription with an almost religious respect, and opened the epistle, which contained what follows. My friend, it is the will of fate that we should be still for some time separated, but the delightful days of youth are not lost beyond return. Perform your duty in camp. I will do mine elsewhere. Accept that which the bearer brings you, make the campaign like a handsome true gentleman, and think of me, who kisses tenderly your black eyes. 
adieu or rather au revoir the mendicant continued to rip his garments and drew from amid his rags a hundred and fifty spanish double pistoles which he laid down on the table then he opened the door bowed and went out before the young man stupefied by his letter had ventured to address a word to him aramis then reperused the letter and perceived a postscript p s you may behave politely to the bearer who is a count and a grandee of spain golden dreams cried aramis oh beautiful life yes we are young yes we shall yet have happy days my love my blood my life all 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 are thine my adored mistress and he kissed the letter with passion without even vouchsafing a look at the gold which sparkled on the table bazin scratched at the door and as aramis had no longer any reason to exclude him he bade him come in bazin was stupefied at the sight of the gold and forgot that he came to announce d'artagnan who curious to know who the mendicant could be came to aramis on leaving athos now as d'artagnan used no ceremony with aramis seeing that bazin forgot to announce him he announced himself the devil my dear aramis said d'artagnan if these are the prunes that are sent to you from tours i beg you will make my compliments to the gardener who gathers them you are mistaken friend d'artagnan said aramis always on his guard this is from my publisher who has just sent me the price of that poem in one syllable verse which i began yonder ah indeed said d'artagnan well your publisher is very generous my dear aramis that's all i can say how monsieur cried bazin a poem sells so dear as that it is incredible oh monsieur you can write as much as you like you may become equal to monsieur de voiture and monsieur de Bensarade. i like that a poet is as good as an abbe ah monsieur aramis become a poet i beg of you bazin my friend said aramis i believe you meddle with my conversation bazin perceived he was wrong he bowed and went out ah said d'artagnan with a smile you sell your productions at their weight in gold you are very fortunate my friend but take care or you will lose that letter which is peeping from your doublet and which also comes no doubt from your publisher aramis blushed to the eyes crammed in the letter and rebuttoned his doublet my dear d'artagnan said he if you please we will join our friends as i am rich we will to-day begin to dine together again expecting that you will be rich in your turn my faith said d'artagnan with great pleasure it is long since we have had a good dinner and i for my part have a somewhat hazardous expedition for this evening and shall not be sorry i confess to fortify myself with a few glasses of good old burgundy agreed as to the old burgundy i have no objection to that said aramis from whom the letter and the gold had removed as by magic his ideas of conversion and having put three or four double pistoles into his pocket to answer the needs of the moment 
he placed the others in the ebony box inlaid with mother-of-pearl in which was the famous handkerchief which served him as a talisman the two friends repaired to athos's and he faithful to his vow of not going out took upon him to order dinner to be brought to them as he was perfectly acquainted with the details of gastronomy d'artagnan and aramis made no objection to abandoning this important care to him they went to find porthos and at the corner of the rue bac met mousqueton who with a most pitiable air was driving before him a mule and a horse d'artagnan uttered a cry of surprise which was not quite free from joy ah my yellow horse cried he aramis look at that horse oh the frightful brute said aramis ah my dear replied d'artagnan upon that very horse i came to paris what does monsieur know this horse said mousqueton it is of an original colour said aramis i never saw one with such a hide in my life i can well believe it replied d'artagnan and that was why i got three crowns for him it must have been for his hide for certes the carcass is not worth eighteen livres but how did this horse come into your hands mousqueton pray said the lackey say nothing about it monsieur it is a frightful trick of the husband of our duchess how is that mousqueton why we are looked upon with a rather favourable eye by a lady of quality the duchesse de but your pardon my master has commanded me to be discreet she had forced us to accept a little souvenir a magnificent spanish genet and an andalusian mule which were beautiful to look upon the husband heard of the affair on their way he confiscated the two magnificent beasts which were being sent to us and substituted these horrible animals which you are taking back to him said d'artagnan exactly replied mousqueton you may well believe that we will not accept such steeds as these in exchange for those which have been promised to us no pardieu though i should like to have seen porthos on my yellow horse that would give me an idea of how i looked when i arrived in paris but don't let us hinder you mousqueton go and perform your master's orders is he at home yes monsieur said mousqueton but in a very ill humour get up he continued his way toward the quai des grands augustins while the two friends went to ring at the bell of the unfortunate porthos he having seen them crossing the yard took care not to answer and they rang in vain meanwhile mousqueton continued on his way and crossing the pont neuf still driving the two sorry animals before him he reached the rue aux ors arrived there he fastened according to the orders of his master both horse and mule to the knocker of the procurator's door then without taking any thought for their future he returned to porthos and told him that his commission was completed in a short time the two unfortunate beasts who had not eaten anything since the morning made such a noise in raising and letting fall the knocker that the procurator ordered his errand-boy to go and inquire in the neighbourhood to whom this horse and mule belonged madame coquenard recognised her present 
and could not at first comprehend this restitution, but the visit of Porthos soon enlightened her. The anger which fired the eyes of the musketeer, in spite of his efforts to suppress it, terrified his sensitive inamorata. In fact, Mousqueton had not concealed from his master that he had met D'Artagnan and Aramis, and that D'Artagnan in the yellow horse had recognized the Baronet's pony upon which he had come to Paris, and which he had sold for three crowns. Porthos went away after having appointed a meeting with the procurator's wife in the cloister of Saint-Magloire. The procurator, seeing he was going, invited him to dinner, an invitation which the musketeer refused with a majestic air. Madame Coquenard repaired trembling to the cloister of Saint-Magloire, for she guessed the reproaches that awaited her there, but she was fascinated by the lofty airs of Porthos. All that which a man wounded in his self-love could let fall, in the shape of imprecations and reproaches, upon the head of a woman, Porthos let fall upon the bowed head of the procurator's wife. "'Alas!' said she, "'I did all for the best.' One of our clients is a horse-dealer. He owes money to the office and is backward in his pay. I took the mule and the horse for what he owed us. He assured me that they were two noble steeds. "'Well, madame,' said Porthos, "'if he owed you more than five crowns, your horse-dealer is a thief.' "'There is no harm in trying to buy things cheap, Monsieur Porthos,' said the procurator's wife, seeking to excuse herself. No, madame, but they who so assiduously try to buy things cheap ought to permit others to seek more generous friends. And Porthos, turning on his heel, made a step to retire. Monsieur Porthos, Monsieur Porthos, cried the procurator's wife, I have been wrong, I see it. I ought not to have driven a bargain when it was to equip a cavalier like you. Porthos, without reply, retreated a second step. The procurator's wife fancied she saw him in a brilliant cloud, all surrounded by duchesses and marchionesses, who cast bags of money at his feet. "'Stop in the name of heaven, Monsieur Porthos!' cried she. "'Stop, and let us talk.' "'Talking with you brings me misfortune,' said Porthos. "'But tell me, what do you ask?' "'Nothing!' for that amounts to the same thing as if I asked you for something." The procurator's wife hung upon the arm of Porthos, and in the violence of her grief she cried out, "'Monsieur Porthos, I am ignorant of all such matters. How should I know what a horse is? How should I know what horse furniture is?' "'You should have left it to me, then, madame, who know what they are. But you wish to be frugal and consequently to lend at usury. It was wrong, Monsieur Porthos, but I will repair that wrong upon my word of honour. How so? asked the musketeer. Listen. This evening Monsieur Coquenard is going to the house of the Duc de Chalne, who has sent for him. It is for a consultation which will last three hours at least. Come, we shall be alone, and can make up our accounts in good time. Now you talk, my dear." "'You pardon me?' "'We shall see,' said Porthos, majestically, and the two separated, saying, "'Till this evening.' "'The devil!' 
thought Porthos, as he walked away, it appears I am getting nearer to Monsieur Coquenard's strong-box at last. End of chapter Chapter 35 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 35 A Gascon A Match for Cupid The evening so impatiently waited for by Porthos and by D'Artagnan at last arrived. As was his custom, D'Artagnan presented himself at Milady's at about nine o'clock. He found her in a charming humour. Never had he been so well received. Argascon knew, by the first glance of his eye, that his billet had been delivered and that this billet had had its effect. Kitty entered to bring some sherbet. Her mistress put on a charming face, and smiled on her graciously. But, alas, the poor girl was so sad that she did not even notice Milady's condescension. D'Artagnan looked at the two women, one after the other, and was forced to acknowledge that, in his opinion, Dame Nature had made a mistake in their formation. To the great lady she had given a heart vile and venal, to the soubrette she had given the heart of a duchess. At ten o'clock Milady began to appear restless. D'Artagnan knew what she wanted. She looked at the clock, rose, reseated herself, smiled at D'Artagnan with an air which said, "'You are very amiable, no doubt, but you would be charming if you would only depart.' D'Artagnan rose and took his hat. Milady gave him her hand to kiss. The young man felt her press his hand, and comprehended that this was a sentiment not of coquetry, but of gratitude because of his departure. "'She loves him devilishly,' he murmured. Then he went out. This time Kitty was nowhere waiting for him, neither in the antechamber, nor in the corridor, nor beneath the great door. It was necessary that D'Artagnan should find alone the staircase and the little chamber. She heard him enter, but she did not raise her head. The young man went to her and took her hands— then she sobbed aloud. As D'Artagnan had presumed, on receiving his letter, Milady, in a delirium of joy, had told her servant everything, and by way of recompense for the manner in which she had this time executed the commission, she had given Kitty a purse. Returning to her own room, Kitty had thrown the purse into a corner, where it lay open, disgorging three or four gold pieces on the carpet. The poor girl, under the caresses of D'Artagnan, lifted her head. D'Artagnan himself was frightened by the change in her countenance. She joined her hands with a suppliant air, but without venturing to speak a word. As little sensitive as was the heart of D'Artagnan, he was touched by this mute sorrow, but he held too tenaciously to his projects, above all to this one, to change the program which he had laid out in advance. He did not therefore allow her any hope that he would flinch, only he represented his action as one of simple vengeance. For the rest this vengeance was very easy, for Milady, doubtless to conceal her blushes from her lover, had ordered Kitty to extinguish all the lights in the apartment, and even in the little chamber itself. 
before daybreak Monsieur de Ward must take his departure, still in obscurity. Presently they heard Milady retire to her room. D'Artagnan slipped into the wardrobe. Hardly was he concealed when the little bell sounded. Kitty went to her mistress and did not leave the door open, but the partition was so thin that one could hear nearly all that passed between the two women. Milady seemed overcome with joy, and made Kitty repeat the smallest details of the pretended interview of the soubrette with de Ward when he received the letter, how he had responded, what was the expression of his face, if he seemed very amorous. And to all these questions poor Kitty, forced to put on a pleasant face, responded in a stifled voice whose dolorous accent her mistress did not, however, remark, solely because happiness is egotistical. Finally, as the hour for her interview with the Count approached, Milady had everything about her darkened, and ordered Kitty to return to her own chamber, and introduce de Ward whenever he presented himself. Kitty's detention was not long. Hardly had D'Artagnan seen, through a crevice in his closet, that the whole apartment was in obscurity, then he slipped out of his concealment at the very moment when Kitty reclosed the door of communication. "'What is that noise?' demanded Milady. "'It is I,' said D'Artagnan, in a subdued voice. "'I, the Comte de Ward.' "'Oh, my God, my God!' murmured Kitty. "'He has not even waited for the hour he himself named.' "'Well,' said Milady, in a trembling voice, "'why do you not enter?' "'Count, Count,' added she, "'you know that I wait for you.' At this appeal, D'Artagnan drew Kitty quietly away, and slipped into the chamber. If rage or sorrow ever torture the heart, it is when a lover receives under a name which is not his own protestations of love addressed to his happy rival. D'Artagnan was in a dolorous situation which he had not foreseen. Jealousy gnawed his heart, and he suffered almost as much as poor Kitty, who at that very moment was crying in the next chamber. "'Yes, Count,' said Milady in her softest voice, and pressing his hand in her own, "'I am happy in the love which your looks and your words have expressed to me every time we have met. I also—I love you. Oh, to-morrow!' To-morrow I must have some pledge from you which will prove that you think of me, and that you may not forget me. Take this." And she slipped a ring from her finger onto D'Artagnan's. D'Artagnan remembered having seen this ring on the finger of Milady. It was a magnificent sapphire, encircled with brilliance. The first movement of D'Artagnan was to return it, but Milady added, "'No, no, keep that ring for love of me.' Besides, in accepting it, she added, in a voice full of emotion, you render me a much greater service than you imagine. This woman is full of mysteries, murmured D'Artagnan to himself. At that instant he felt himself ready to reveal all. He even opened his mouth to tell Milady who he was, and with what a revengeful purpose he had come. But she added, Poor angel! whom that monster of a Gascon barely failed to kill? The monster was himself. Oh, continued Milady, do your wounds still make you suffer? 
"'Yes, much,' said D'Artagnan, who did not well know how to answer. "'Be tranquil,' murmured Milady. "'I will avenge you, and cruelly.' "'Peste!' said D'Artagnan to himself. "'The moment for confidences has not yet come.' It took some time for D'Artagnan to resume this little dialogue, but then all the ideas of vengeance which he had brought with him had completely vanished. This woman exercised over him an unaccountable power. He hated and adored her at the same time. He would not have believed that two sentiments so opposite could dwell in the same heart, and by their union constitute a passion so strange, and as it were, diabolical. Presently it sounded one o'clock. It was necessary to separate. D'Artagnan, at the moment of quitting Milady, felt only the liveliest regret at the parting, and as they addressed each other in a reciprocally passionate adieu, another interview was arranged for the following week. Poor Kitty hoped to speak a few words to D'Artagnan when he passed through her chamber, but Milady herself reconducted him through the darkness, and only quit him at the staircase. The next morning D'Artagnan ran to find Athos. He was engaged in an adventure so singular that he wished for counsel. He therefore told him all. "'Your milady,' said he, "'appears to be an infamous creature, but not the less you have done wrong to deceive her. In one fashion or another you have a terrible enemy on your hands.' While thus speaking, Athos regarded with attention the sapphire set with diamonds which had taken, on D'Artagnan's finger, the place of the queen's ring, carefully kept in a casket. "'You notice my ring?' said the Gascon, proud to display so rich a gift in the eyes of his friends. "'Yes,' said Athos. "'It reminds me of a family jewel.' "'It is beautiful, is it not?' said D'Artagnan. "'Yes,' said Athos. "'Magnificent. I did not think two sapphires of such a fine water existed. Have you traded it for your diamond?' No, it is a gift from my beautiful Englishwoman, or rather Frenchwoman, for I am convinced she was born in France, though I have not questioned her. That ring comes from Milady, cried Athos, with a voice in which it was easy to detect strong emotion. Her very self, she gave it me last night. Here it is, replied D'Artagnan, taking it from his finger. Athos examined it and became very pale. He tried it on his left hand. It fit his finger as if made for it. A shade of anger and vengeance passed across the usually calm brow of this gentleman. "'It is impossible it can be she,' said he. "'How could this ring come into the hands of Milady Cleric? And yet it is difficult to suppose such a resemblance should exist between two jewels.' "'Do you know this ring?' said D'Artagnan. "'I thought I did.' replied Athos, but no doubt I was mistaken. And he returned D'Artagnan the ring without, however, ceasing to look at it. "'Pray, D'Artagnan,' said Athos, after a minute, "'either take off that ring or turn the mounting inside. It recalls such cruel recollections that I shall have no head to converse with you. Don't ask me for counsel. Don't tell me you are perplexed what to do. But stop!' Let me look at that sapphire again. The one I mentioned to you had one of its faces scratched by accident. 
D'Artagnan took off the ring, giving it again to Athos. Athos started. "'Look!' said he. "'Is it not strange?' And he pointed out to D'Artagnan the scratch he had remembered. "'But from whom did this ring come to you, Athos?' "'From my mother, who inherited it from her mother. As I told you, it is an old family jewel.' "'And you sold it?' asked D'Artagnan, hesitatingly. "'No,' replied Athos, with a singular smile. "'I gave it away in a night of love, as it has been given to you.' D'Artagnan became pensive in his turn. It appeared as if there were abysses in Milady's soul, whose depths were dark and unknown. He took back the ring, but put it in his pocket and not on his finger. "'D'Artagnan,' said Athos, taking his hand, "'you know I love you.' If I had a son, I could not love him better. Take my advice. Renounce this woman. I do not know her, but a sort of intuition tells me she is a lost creature, and that there is something fatal about her. You are right, said D'Artagnan. I will have done with her. I own that this woman terrifies me. Shall you have the courage? said Athos. I shall, replied D'Artagnan and instantly. In truth, my young friend, you will act rightly, said the gentleman, pressing the Gascon's hand with an affection almost paternal, and God grant that this woman, who has scarcely entered into your life, may not leave a terrible trace in it. And Athos bowed to D'Artagnan like a man who wishes it understood, that he would not be sorry to be left alone with his thoughts. On reaching home, D'Artagnan found Kitty waiting for him. A month of fever could not have changed her more than this one night of sleeplessness and sorrow. She was sent by her mistress to the false de Wardes. Her mistress was mad with love, intoxicated with joy. She wished to know when her lover could meet her a second night, and poor Kitty, pale and trembling, awaited D'Artagnan's reply. The counsels of his friend, joined to the cries of his own heart, made him determine— now his pride was saved and his vengeance satisfied, not to see Milady again. As a reply, he wrote the following letter. Do not depend upon me, madame, for the next meeting. Since my convalescence, I have so many affairs of this kind on my hands that I am forced to regulate them a little. When your turn comes, I shall have the honor to inform you of it. I kiss your hands. Comte de Ward. Not a word about the sapphire. Was the Gascon determined to keep it as a weapon against Milady, Or else, let us be frank, did he not reserve the sapphire as a last resource for his outfit? It would be wrong to judge the actions of one period from the point of view of another. That which would now be considered as disgraceful to a gentleman was at that time quite a simple and natural affair, and the younger sons of the best families were frequently supported by their mistresses. D'Artagnan gave the open letter to Kitty, who at first was unable to comprehend it, but who became almost wild with joy on reading it a second time. She could scarcely believe in her happiness, and D'Artagnan was forced to renew with the living voice the assurances which he had written. And whatever might be, considering the violent character of Milady, the danger which the poor girl incurred in giving this billet to her mistress, she ran back to the Place Royale as fast as her legs could carry her. 
the heart of the best woman is pitiless toward the sorrows of a rival. Milady opened the letter with eagerness equal to Kitty's in bringing it, but at the first word she read, she became livid. She crushed the paper in her hand, and turned with flashing eyes upon Kitty. She cried, "'What is this letter?' "'The answer to Madame's,' replied Kitty, all in a tremble. "'Impossible!' cried Milady. "'It is impossible a gentleman could have written such a letter to a woman.' Then all at once, starting, she cried, "'My God, can he have—' And she stopped. She ground her teeth. She was of the colour of ashes. She tried to go toward the window for air, but she could only stretch forth her arms. Her legs failed her, and she sank into an armchair. Kitty, fearing she was ill, hastened toward her and was beginning to open her dress. But Milady started up, pushing her away. "'What do you want with me?' said she. "'And why do you place your hand on me?' Uh, "'I thought that Madame was ill, and I wished to bring her help,' responded the maid, frightened at the terrible expression which had come over her mistress's face. "'I faint? I? I? Do you take me for half a woman? When I am insulted, I do not faint. I avenge myself.' and she made a sign for Kitty to leave the room. End of chapter Chapter 36 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 36 Dream of Vengeance That evening Milady gave orders that when Monsieur d'Artagnan came as usual, he should be immediately admitted, but he did not come. The next day Kitty went to see the young man again, and related to him all that had passed on the preceding evening. D'Artagnan smiled. This jealous anger of Milady was his revenge. That evening Milady was still more impatient than on the preceding evening. She renewed the order relative to the Gascon, but as before she expected him in vain. The next morning, when Kitty presented herself at D'Artagnan's, she was no longer joyous and alert as on the two preceding days, but on the contrary, sad as death. D'Artagnan asked the poor girl what was the matter with her, but she, as her only reply, drew a letter from her pocket and gave it to him. This letter was in Milady's handwriting, only this time it was addressed to Monsieur D'Artagnan, and not to Monsieur de Ward. He opened it and read as follows. Monsieur D'Artagnan, it is wrong thus to neglect your friends particularly at the moment you are about to leave them for so long a time. My brother-in-law and myself expected you yesterday, and the day before, but in vain. Will it be the same this evening? You are very grateful, Milady Cleric. That's all very simple, said D'Artagnan. I expected this letter. My credit rises by the fall of that of Comte de Ward. And will you go? asked Kitty. "'Listen to me, my dear girl,' 
said the Gascon, who sought for an excuse in his own eyes for breaking the promise he had made Athos, you must understand it would be impolitic not to accept such a positive invitation. Milady, not seeing me come again, would not be able to understand what could cause the interruption of my visits, and might suspect something. Who could say how far the vengeance of such a woman would go? "'Oh, my God!' said Kitty. "'You know how to represent things in such a way that you are always in the right. You are going now to pay your court to her again, and if this time you succeed in pleasing her in your own name and with your own face, it will be much worse than before.' Instinct made poor Kitty guess a part of what was to happen. D'Artagnan reassured her as well as he could, and promised to remain insensible to the seductions of Milady. He desired Kitty to tell her mistress that he could not be more grateful for her kindnesses than he was, and that he would be obedient to her orders. He did not dare to write, for fear of not being able, to such experienced eyes as those of Milady, to disguise his writing sufficiently. As nine o'clock sounded, D'Artagnan was at the Place Royale. It was evident that the servants who waited in the antechamber were warned, for as soon as D'Artagnan appeared, before even he had asked if Milady were visible, one of them ran to announce him. "'Show him in,' said Milady, in a quick tone, but so piercing that D'Artagnan heard her in the antechamber. He was introduced. "'I am at home to nobody,' said Milady. Observe to nobody. The servant went out. D'Artagnan cast an inquiring glance at Milady. She was pale, and looked fatigued, either from tears or want of sleep. The number of lights had been intentionally diminished, but the young woman could not conceal the traces of the fever which had devoured her for two days. D'Artagnan approached her with his usual gallantry. She then made an extraordinary effort to receive him, but never did a more distressed countenance give the lie to a more amiable smile. To the questions which D'Artagnan put concerning her health, she replied, Bad, very bad. Then, replied he, my visit is ill-timed. You, no doubt, stand in need of repose, and I will withdraw. No, no, said Milady. On the contrary, stay, Monsieur D'Artagnan. Your agreeable company will divert me. Uh-oh, thought D'Artagnan. She has never been so kind before. On guard! Milady assumed the most agreeable air possible, and conversed with more than her usual brilliancy. At the same time the fever, which for an instant abandoned her, returned to give luster to her eyes, color to her cheeks, and vermilion to her lips. D'Artagnan was again in the presence of the Circe, who had before surrounded him with her enchantments. His love, which he believed to be extinct but which was only asleep, awoke again in his heart. Milady smiled, and D'Artagnan felt that he could damn himself for that smile. There was a moment at which he felt something like remorse. By degrees Milady became more communicative. She asked D'Artagnan if he had a mistress. "'Alas!' said D'Artagnan, with the most sentimental air he could assume. "'Can you be cruel enough to put such a question to me? To me, who from the moment I saw you, have only breathed and sighed through you and for you?' Milady smiled with a strange smile. 
"'Then you love me?' said she. "'Have I any need to tell you so? Have you not perceived it?' "'It may be. But you know the more hearts are worth the capture, the more difficult they are to be won.' "'Oh, difficulties do not affright me,' said D'Artagnan. "'I shrink before nothing but impossibilities.' "'Nothing is impossible,' replied Milady, to true love. "'Nothing, madame?' "'Nothing,' replied Milady. "'The devil,' thought D'Artagnan. "'The note is changed. Is she going to fall in love with me, by chance, this fair inconstant? And will she be disposed to give me myself another sapphire like that which she gave me for de Ward? D'Artagnan rapidly drew his seat nearer to Milady's. "'Well, now,' she said, "'let us see what you would do to prove this love of which you speak.' "'All that could be required of me. Order, I am ready.' "'For everything?' "'For everything!' cried D'Artagnan, who knew beforehand that he had not much to risk in engaging himself thus. "'Well, now let us talk a little seriously.' said Milady, in her turn, drawing her armchair nearer to D'Artagnan's chair. "'I am all attention, madame,' said he. Milady remained thoughtful and undecided for a moment. Then, as if appearing to have formed a resolution, she said, "'I have an enemy.' "'You, madame,' said D'Artagnan, affecting surprise. "'Is that possible, my God? Good and beautiful as you are?' A mortal enemy. Indeed. An enemy who has insulted me so cruelly that between him and me it is war to the death. May I reckon on you as an auxiliary? D'Artagnan at once perceived the ground which the vindictive creature wished to reach. You may, madame, said he with emphasis. My arm and my life belong to you, like my love. Then, said Milady, since you are as generous as you are loving she stopped well demanded d'artagnan well replied milady after a moment of silence from the present time cease to talk of impossibilities do not overwhelm me with happiness cried d'artagnan throwing himself on his knees and covering with kisses the hands abandoned to him "'Avenge me of that infamous de Ward,' said Milady between her teeth, "'and I shall soon know how to get rid of you, you double idiot, you animated sword-blade.' "'Fall voluntarily into my arms, hypocritical and dangerous woman,' said D'Artagnan, likewise to himself, "'after having abused me with such effrontery, and afterward I will laugh at you with him whom you wish me to kill.' D'Artagnan lifted up his head. I am ready, said he. You have understood me, then, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, said Milady. I could interpret one of your looks. Then you would employ for me your arm, which has already acquired so much renown? Instantly. But on my part, said Milady, how should I repay such a service? I know these lovers. They are men who do nothing for nothing. "'You know the only reply that I desire,' said D'Artagnan, "'the only one worthy of you and of me.' And he drew nearer to her. 
she scarcely resisted. "'Interested man!' cried she, smiling. "'Ah!' cried D'Artagnan, really carried away by the passion this woman had the power to kindle in his heart. "'Ah! that is because my happiness appears so impossible to me, and I have such fear that it should fly away from me like a dream that I pant to make a reality of it. "'Well, merit this pretended happiness, then?' "'I am at your orders,' said D'Artagnan. "'Quite certain?' said Milady, with a last doubt. "'Only name to me the base man that has brought tears into your beautiful eyes.' "'Who told you that I have been weeping?' said she. "'It appeared to me—such women as I never weep,' said Milady. "'So much the better. Come, tell me his name.' "'Remember that his name is all my secret.' yet i must know his name yes you must see what confidence i have in you you overwhelm me with joy what is his name you know him indeed yes it is surely not one of my friends replied d'artagnan affecting hesitation in order to make her believe him ignorant if it were one of your friends you would hesitate then cried milady and a threatening glance darted from her eyes. "'Not if it were my own brother!' cried D'Artagnan, as if carried away by his enthusiasm. Argascon promised this without risk, for he knew all that was meant. "'I love your devotedness,' said Milady. "'Alas, do you love nothing else in me?' asked D'Artagnan. "'I love you also, you!' said she, taking his hand. The warm pressure made D'Artagnan tremble, as if by the touch that fever which consumed Milady attacked himself. "'You love me! You!' cried he. "'Oh, if that were so, I should lose my reason!' And he folded her in his arms. She made no effort to remove her lips from his kisses, only she did not respond to them. Her lips were cold. It appeared to D'Artagnan that he had embraced a statue." He was not the less intoxicated with joy, electrified by love. He almost believed in the tenderness of Milady. He almost believed in the crime of de Wardes. If de Wardes had at that moment been under his hand, he would have killed him. Milady seized the occasion. "'His name is,' said she, in her turn. "'De Wardes! I know it!' cried D'Artagnan. "'And how do you know it?' asked Milady, seizing both his hands and endeavouring to read with her eyes to the bottom of his heart. D'Artagnan felt he had allowed himself to be carried away, and that he had committed an error. "'Tell me, tell me, tell me, I say,' repeated Milady. "'How do you know it?' "'How do I know it?' said D'Artagnan. "'Yes.' "'I know it because yesterday Monsieur de Ward in a saloon where I was, showed a ring which he said he had received from you. "'Wretch!' cried Milady. The epithet, as may be easily understood, resounded to the very bottom of D'Artagnan's heart. "'Well,' continued she, "'well, I will avenge you of this wretch,' replied D'Artagnan, giving himself the airs of Don Jafet of Armenia. "'Thanks, my brave friend,' cried Milady, and when shall I be avenged? Tomorrow, immediately, when you please. 
Milady was about to cry out, immediately, but she reflected that such precipitation would not be very gracious toward D'Artagnan. Besides, she had a thousand precautions to take, a thousand counsels to give to her defender, in order that he might avoid explanations with the Count before witnesses. All this was answered by an expression of D'Artagnan's. "'Tomorrow,' said he, "'you will be avenged, or I shall be dead.' "'No,' said she, "'you will avenge me, but you will not be dead. He is a coward.' with women perhaps but not with men i know something of him but it seems you had not much reason to complain of your fortune in your contest with him fortune is a courtesan favourable yesterday she may turn her back to-morrow which means that you now hesitate no i do not hesitate god forbid but would it be just to allow me to go to a possible death without having given me at least something more than hope Milady answered by a glance which said, "'Is that all? Speak then.' And then accompanying the glance with explanatory words, "'That is but too just,' said she tenderly. "'Oh, you are an angel!' exclaimed the young man. "'Then all is agreed?' said she. "'Except that which I ask of you, dear love.' "'But when I assure you that you may rely on my tenderness?' I cannot wait till to-morrow. Silence! I hear my brother. It will be useless for him to find you here. She rang the bell, and Kitty appeared. Go out this way, said she, opening a small private door, and come back at eleven o'clock. We will then terminate this conversation. Kitty will conduct you to my chamber. The poor girl almost fainted at hearing these words. "'Well, mademoiselle, what are you thinking about, standing there like a statue? Do as I bid you. Show the chevalier out, and this evening at eleven o'clock you have heard what I said.' "'It appears that these appointments are all made for eleven o'clock,' thought D'Artagnan. "'That's a settled custom.' Milady held out her hand to him, which he kissed tenderly. "'But,' said he, as he retired as quickly as possible from the reproaches of Kitty, I must not play the fool. This woman is certainly a great liar. I must take care. End of chapter Chapter 37 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 37 Milady's Secret D'Artagnan left the hotel instead of going up at once to Kitty's chamber, as she endeavored to persuade him to do, and that for two reasons. The first, because by this means he should escape reproaches, recriminations, and prayers, the second, because he was not sorry to have an opportunity of reading his own thoughts, and endeavouring, if possible, to fathom those of this woman. What was most clear in the matter was that D'Artagnan loved Milady like a madman, and that she did not love him at all. In an instant D'Artagnan perceived that the best way in which he could act would be to go home and write Milady a long letter, 
in which he would confess to her that he and de Wards were, up to the present moment, absolutely the same, and that consequently he could not undertake, without committing suicide, to kill the Comte de Ward. But he also was spurred on by a ferocious desire of vengeance. He wished to subdue this woman in his own name, and as this vengeance appeared to him to have a certain sweetness in it, he could not make up his mind to renounce it. He walked six or seven times round the Place Royale, turning at every ten steps to look at the light in Milady's apartment, which was to be seen through the blinds. It was evident that this time the young woman was not in such haste to retire to her apartment as she had been the first. At length the light disappeared. With this light was extinguished the last irresolution in the heart of D'Artagnan. He recalled to his mind the details of the first night, and with a beating heart and a brain on fire, he re-entered the hotel and flew toward Kitty's chamber. The poor girl, pale as death and trembling in all her limbs, wished to delay her lover, but Milady, with her ear on the watch, had heard the noise D'Artagnan had made, and opening the door said, "'Come in.' All this was of such incredible immodesty, of such monstrous effrontery, that D'Artagnan could scarcely believe what he saw or what he heard. He imagined himself to be drawn into one of those fantastic intrigues one meets in dreams. He, however, darted not the less quickly toward Milady, yielding to that magnetic attraction which the lodestone exercises over iron. As the door closed after them, Kitty rushed toward it. Jealousy, fury, offended pride, all the passions, in short, that dispute the heart of an outraged woman in love, urged her to make a revelation. But she reflected that she would be totally lost if she confessed having assisted in such a machination, and, above all, that D'Artagnan would also be lost to her forever. This last thought of love counseled her to make this last sacrifice. D'Artagnan, on his part, had gained the summit of all his wishes. It was no longer a rival who was beloved, it was himself who was apparently beloved. A secret voice whispered to him, at the bottom of his heart, that he was but an instrument of vengeance, that he was only caressed till he had given death. But pride, but self-love, but madness silenced this voice and stifled its murmurs. And then our Gascon, with that large quantity of conceit which we know he possessed, compared himself with de Ward, and asked himself why, after all, he should not be beloved for himself. He was absorbed entirely by the sensations of the moment. Milady was no longer for him that woman of fatal intentions who had for a moment terrified him. She was an ardent, passionate mistress, abandoning herself to love which she also seemed to feel. Two hours thus glided away. When the transports of the two lovers were calmer, Milady, who had not the same motives for forgetfulness that D'Artagnan had, was the first to return to reality, and asked the young man if the means which were on the morrow to bring on the encounter between him and de Wards were already arranged in his mind. But D'Artagnan, whose ideas had taken quite another course, forgot himself like a fool, and answered gallantly that it was too late to think about duels and sword-thrusts. This coldness toward the only interests that occupied her mind terrified Milady 
whose questions became more pressing. Then D'Artagnan, who had never seriously thought of this impossible duel, endeavoured to turn the conversation. But he could not succeed. Milady kept him within the limits she had traced beforehand, with her irresistible spirit and her iron will. D'Artagnan fancied himself very cunning when advising Milady to renounce, by pardoning de Ward, the furious projects she had formed. But at the first word the young woman started, and exclaimed in a sharp, bantering tone which sounded strangely in the darkness, "'Are you afraid, dear Monsieur d'Artagnan?' "'You cannot think so, dear love,' replied d'Artagnan. "'But now, suppose this poor Comte de Ward were less guilty than you think him.' "'At all events,' said Milady seriously, "'he has deceived me, and from the moment he deceived me, he merited death.' "'He shall die, then, since you condemn him,' said D'Artagnan, in so firm a tone that it appeared to Milady an undoubted proof of devotion. This reassured her. We cannot say how long the night seemed to Milady, but D'Artagnan believed it to be hardly two hours before the daylight peeped through the window-blinds, and invaded the chamber with its paleness. Seeing D'Artagnan about to leave her, Milady recalled his promise to avenge her on the Comte de Ward. "'I am quite ready,' said D'Artagnan. "'But in the first place I should like to be certain of one thing.' "'And what is that?' asked Milady. "'That is, whether you really love me.' "'I have given you proof of that, it seems to me.' "'And I am yours, body and soul.' "'Thanks, my brave lover. But as you are satisfied of my love, you must in your turn satisfy me of yours. Is it not so? Certainly. But if you love me as much as you say, replied D'Artagnan, do you not entertain a little fear on my account? What have I to fear? Why, that I might be dangerously wounded, killed even. Impossible, cried Milady. You are such a valiant man, and such an expert swordsman. You would not, then, prefer a method, resumed D'Artagnan, which would equally avenge you while rendering the combat useless? Milady looked at her lover in silence. The pale light of the first rays of day gave to her clear eyes a strangely frightful expression. Really, said she, I believe you now begin to hesitate. No, I do not hesitate, but I really pity this poor Comte de Ward since you have ceased to love him. I think that a man must be so severely punished by the loss of your love that he stands in need of no other chastisement. "'Who told you that I loved him?' asked Milady sharply. "'At least I am now at liberty to believe, without too much fatuity, that you love another,' said the young man in a caressing tone, "'and I repeat that I am really interested for the Count.' You? asked Milady. Yes, I. And why you? Because I alone know. What? That he is far from being, or rather having been, so guilty toward you as he appears. Indeed, said Milady in an anxious tone. Explain yourself, for I really cannot tell what you mean. And she looked at D'Artagnan, who embraced her tenderly with eyes which seemed to burn themselves away. 
Yes, I am a man of honour, said D'Artagnan, determined to come to an end. And since your love is mine, and I am satisfied I possess it, for I do possess it, do I not? Entirely. Go on. Well, I feel as if transformed. A confession weighs on my mind. A confession? If I had the least doubt of your love, I would not make it. But you love me, my beautiful mistress, do you not? Without doubt. Then, if through excess of love I have rendered myself culpable toward you, you will pardon me? Perhaps. D'Artagnan tried with his sweetest smile to touch his lips to Milady's, but she evaded him. This confession, said she, growing paler, what is this confession? You gave De Ward a meeting on Thursday last in this very room, did you not? No, no, it is not true, said Milady in a tone of voice so firm and with a countenance so unchanged that if D'Artagnan had not been in such perfect possession of the fact, he would have doubted. Do not lie, my angel, said D'Artagnan, smiling. That would be useless. What do you mean? Speak, you kill me. Be satisfied. You are not guilty toward me, and I have already pardoned you. What next? What next? De Ward cannot boast of anything. How is that? You have told me yourself that that ring— That ring I have! The Comte de Ward of Thursday and the D'Artagnan of today are the same person. The imprudent young man expected a surprise mixed with shame a slight storm which would resolve itself into tears, but he was strangely deceived, and his error was not of long duration. Pale and trembling, Milady repulsed D'Artagnan's attempted embrace by a violent blow on the chest as she sprang out of bed. It was almost broad daylight. D'Artagnan detained her by her nightdress of fine India linen to implore her pardon, but she, with a strong movement, tried to escape. Then the cambric was torn from her beautiful shoulders, and on one of those lovely shoulders, round and white, D'Artagnan recognized, with inexpressible astonishment, the fleur-de-lis, that indelible mark which the hand of the infamous executioner had imprinted. "'Great God!' cried D'Artagnan, losing his hold of her dress, and remaining mute, motionless, and frozen. But Milady felt herself denounced even by his terror— he had doubtless seen all. The young man now knew her secret, her terrible secret, the secret she concealed even from her maid with such care, the secret of which all the world was ignorant except himself. She turned upon him, no longer like a furious woman, but like a wounded panther. "'Ah, wretch!' cried she. "'You have basely betrayed me, and still more, you have my secret. You shall die!' and she flew to a little inlaid casket which stood upon the dressing-table, opened it with a feverish and trembling hand, drew from it a small poniard with a golden haft and a sharp thin blade, and then threw herself with a bound upon D'Artagnan. Although the young man was brave, as we know, he was terrified at that wild countenance, those terribly dilated pupils, those pale cheeks and those bleeding lips. He recoiled to the other side of the room as he would have done from a serpent which was crawling toward him, 
and his sword coming in contact with his nervous hand, he drew it almost unconsciously from the scabbard. But without taking any heed of the sword, Milady endeavoured to get near enough to him to stab him, and did not stop till she felt the sharp point at her throat. She then tried to seize the sword with her hands, but D'Artagnan kept it free from her grasp, and presenting the point, sometimes at her eyes, sometimes at her breast, compelled her to glide behind the bedstead, while he aimed at making his retreat by the door which led to Kitty's apartment. Milady, during this time, continued to strike at him with horrible fury, screaming in a formidable way. As all this, however, bore some resemblance to a duel, D'Artagnan began to recover himself little by little. "'Well, beautiful lady, very well,' said he. "'But, pardieu, if you don't calm yourself, I will design a second fleur-de-lis upon one of those pretty cheeks.' "'Scoundrel! Infamous scoundrel!' howled Milady. But D'Artagnan, still keeping on the defensive, drew near to Kitty's door. She, in overturning the furniture in her efforts to get at him, he, in screening himself behind the furniture to keep out of her reach, Kitty opened the door. D'Artagnan, who had unceasingly manoeuvred to gain this point, was not at more than three paces from it. With one spring he flew from the chamber of Milady into that of the maid, and quick as lightning he slammed to the door, and placed all his weight upon it, while Kitty pushed the bolts. Then Milady attempted to tear down the door-case, with a strength apparently above that of a woman, but finding she could not accomplish this, she in her fury stabbed at the door with her poniard, the point of which repeatedly glittered through the wood. Every blow was accompanied with terrible imprecations. "'Quick, Kitty, quick!' said D'Artagnan, in a low voice, as soon as the bolts were fast. "'Let me get out of the hotel, for if we leave her time to turn round, she will have me killed by the servants.' "'But you can't go out so,' said Kitty. "'You are naked.' "'That's true,' said D'Artagnan, then first thinking of the costume he found himself in. "'That's true. But dress me as well as you are able. Only make haste. Think, my dear girl, it's life and death.' Kitty was but too well aware of that. In a turn of the hand she muffled him up in a flowered robe, a large hood, and a cloak. She gave him some slippers, in which he placed his naked feet, and then conducted him down the stairs. It was time. Milady had already rung her bell and roused the whole hotel. The porter was drawing the cord at the moment Milady cried from her window, "'Don't open!' The young man fled while she was still threatening him with an impotent gesture. The moment she lost sight of him, Milady tumbled fainting into her chamber. End of chapter Chapter 38 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith. Of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter thirty eight. How, without incommoding himself, Athos procures his equipment. D'Artagnan was so completely bewildered that, without taking any heed of what might become of Kitty, he ran at full speed across half Paris, and did not stop till he came to Athos's door. The confusion of his mind, 
the terror which spurred him on, the cries of some of the patrol who started in pursuit of him, and the hooting of the people who, notwithstanding the early hour, were going to their work, only made him precipitate his course. He crossed the court, ran up the two flights to Athos's apartment, and knocked at the door enough to break it down. Grimaud came, rubbing his half-open eyes, to answer this noisy summons, and D'Artagnan sprang with such violence into the room as nearly to overturn the astonished lackey. In spite of his habitual silence, the poor lad this time found his speech. "'Hullo, there!' cried he. "'What do you want, you strumpet? What's your business here, you hussy?' D'Artagnan threw off his hood, and disengaged his hands from the fold of the cloak. At sight of the moustaches and the naked sword, the poor devil perceived he had to deal with a man. He then concluded it must be an assassin. "'Help! Murder! Help!' cried he. "'Hold your tongue, you stupid fellow!' said the young man. "'I am D'Artagnan. Don't you know me? Where is your master?' "'You, Monsieur D'Artagnan!' cried Grimaud. "'Impossible!' "'Grimaud!' said Athos, coming out of his apartment in a dressing-gown. "'Grimaud, I thought I heard you permitting yourself to speak.' "'Ah, monsieur, it is silence!' Grimaud contented himself with pointing D'Artagnan out to his master with his finger. Athos recognized his comrade, and, phlegmatic as he was, he burst into a laugh which was quite excused by the strange masquerade before his eyes. Petticoats falling over his shoes— sleeves tucked up, and moustaches stiff with agitation. "'Don't laugh, my friend!' cried D'Artagnan. "'For heaven's sake, don't laugh, for upon my soul it is no laughing matter!' And he pronounced these words with such a solemn air, and with such a real appearance of terror, that Athos eagerly seized his hand, crying, "'Are you wounded, my friend? How pale you are!' "'No, but I have just met with a terrible adventure. Are you alone, Athos?' Parbleu, whom do you expect to find with me at this hour? Well, well, and D'Artagnan rushed into Athos's chamber. Come, speak, said the latter, closing the door and bolting it, that they might not be disturbed. Is the king dead? Have you killed the cardinal? You are quite upset. Come, come, tell me. I am dying with curiosity and uneasiness. Athos said D'Artagnan, getting rid of his female garments, and appearing in his shirt, "'Prepare yourself to hear an incredible, an unheard-of story.' "'Well, but put on this dressing-gown first, said the musketeer to his friend. D'Artagnan donned the robe as quickly as he could, mistaking one sleeve for the other, so greatly was he still agitated. "'Well,' said Athos, "'well,' replied D'Artagnan, bending his mouth to Athos's ear, and lowering his voice, Milady is marked with a fleur-de-lis upon her shoulder. Ah! cried the musketeer, as if he had received a ball in his heart. Let us see, said D'Artagnan. Are you sure that the other is dead? The other, said Athos, in so stifled a voice that D'Artagnan scarcely heard him. Yes, she of whom you told me one day at Amiens. Athos uttered a groan, and let his head sink on his hands. "'This is a woman of twenty-six or twenty-eight years.' "'Fair,' said Athos. "'Is she not?' "'Very.' 
blue and clear eyes of a strange brilliancy with black eyelids and eyebrows yes tall well made she has lost a tooth next to the eye tooth on the left yes the fleur-de-lis is small rosy in colour and looks as if efforts had been made to efface it by the application of poultices yes but you say she is english she is called milady but she may be french lord de winter is only her brother-in-law i will see her d'artagnan beware athos beware you tried to kill her she is a woman to return you the like and not to fail she will not dare to say anything that would be to denounce herself she is capable of anything or everything did you ever see her furious no said athos a tigress a panther ah my dear athos i am greatly afraid i have drawn a terrible vengeance on both of us d'artagnan then related all the mad passion of milady and her menaces of death you are right and upon my soul i would give my life for a hair said athos fortunately the day after tomorrow we leave paris we are going according to all probability to la rochelle and once gone she will follow you to the end of the world athos if she recognizes you let her then exhaust her vengeance on me alone my dear friend of what consequence is it if she kills me said athos do you perchance think i set any great store by life there is something horribly mysterious under all this athos this woman is one of the cardinal's spies i am sure of that in that case take care if the cardinal does not hold you in high admiration for the affair of london he entertains a great hatred for you but as considering everything he cannot accuse you openly and as hatred must be satisfied particularly when it's a cardinal's hatred take care of yourself if you go out do not go out alone when you eat use every precaution mistrust everything in short even your own shadow fortunately said d'artagnan all this will be only necessary till after to-morrow evening for once with the army we shall have i hope only men to dread in the meantime said athos i renounce my plan of seclusion and wherever you go i will go with you you must return to the rue des fossoyeurs i will accompany you but however near it may be replied d'artagnan i cannot go thither in this guise that's true said athos and he rang the bell grimaud entered athos made him a sign to go to d'artagnan's residence and bring back some clothes grimaud replied by another sign that he understood perfectly and set off all this will not advance your outfit said athos for if i am not mistaken you have left the best of your apparel with milady and she will certainly not have the politeness to return it to you fortunately you have the sapphire the jewel is yours my dear athos did you not tell me it was a family jewel yes my grandfather gave two thousand crowns for it as he once told me it formed part of the nuptial present he made his wife and it is magnificent my mother gave it to me and i fool as i was instead of keeping the ring as a holy relic gave it to this wretch 
Then, my friend, take back this ring, to which I see you attach much value. I take back the ring, after it has passed through the hands of that infamous creature? Never. That ring is defiled, D'Artagnan. Sell it, then. Sell a jewel which came from my mother. I vow I should consider it a profanation. Pledge it, then. You can borrow at least a thousand crowns on it. With that sum you can extricate yourself from your present difficulties, and when you are full of money again, you can redeem it, and take it back cleansed from its ancient stains, as it will have passed through the hands of usurers. Athos smiled. "'You are a capital companion, D'Artagnan,' said he. "'Your never-failing cheerfulness raises poor souls in affliction. "'Well, let us pledge the ring, but upon one condition. "'What?' that there shall be five hundred crowns for you, and five hundred crowns for me. Don't dream it, Athos. I don't need the quarter of such a sum. I, who am still only in the guards, and by selling my saddles I shall procure it. What do I want? A horse for Planchet, that's all. Besides, you forget that I have a ring likewise. To which you attach more value, it seems, than I do to mine. At least I have thought so." Yes, for in any extreme circumstance it might not only extricate us from some great embarrassment, but even a great danger. It is not only a valuable diamond, but it is an enchanted talisman. I don't at all understand you, but I believe all you say to be true. Let us return to my ring, or, or rather to yours. You shall take half the sum that will be advanced upon it, or I will throw it into the Seine." And I doubt, as was the case with Polycrates, whether any fish will be sufficiently complacent to bring it back to us. Well, I will take it, then, said D'Artagnan. At this moment Grimaud returned, accompanied by Planchet. The latter, anxious about his master, and curious to know what had happened to him, had taken advantage of the opportunity and brought the garments himself. D'Artagnan dressed himself, and Athos did the same. When the two were ready to go out, the latter made Grimaud the sign of a man taking aim, and the lackey immediately took down his musketoon, and prepared to follow his master. They arrived without accident at the Rue des Fossoyeurs. Bonacieux was standing at the door, and looked at D'Artagnan hatefully. "'Make haste, dear lodger,' said he. "'There is a very pretty girl waiting for you upstairs.' and you know women don't like to be kept waiting. "'That's Kitty,' said D'Artagnan to himself, and he darted into the passage. Sure enough, upon the landing leading to the chamber, and crouching against the door, he found the poor girl all in a tremble. As soon as she perceived him, she cried, "'You have promised your protection. You have promised to save me from her anger. Remember, it is you who have ruined me.' "'Yes, yes, to be sure, Kitty,' said D'Artagnan. "'Be at ease, my girl. But what happened after my departure?' "'How can I tell?' said Kitty. "'The lackeys were brought by the cries she made. She was mad with passion. There exists no imprecation she did not pour out against you. Then I thought she would remember it was through my chamber you had penetrated hers, and that then she would suppose I was your accomplice.' So I took what little money I had, and the best of my things, and I got away. Poor dear girl! But what can I do with you? I am going away the day after tomorrow. 
do what you please monsieur chevalier help me out of paris help me out of france i cannot take you however to the siege of la rochelle said d'artagnan no but you can place me in one of the provinces with some lady of your acquaintance in your own country for instance my dear little love in my country the ladies do without chambermaids but stop i can manage your business for you planchet go and find aramis request him to come here directly we have something very important to say to him i understand said athos but why not porthos i should have thought that his duchess oh porthos's duchess is dressed by her husband's clerks said d'artagnan laughing besides kitty would not like to live in the rue d'ozor isn't it so kitty i do not care where i live said kitty provided i am well concealed and nobody knows where i am meanwhile kitty when we are about to separate and you are no longer jealous of me monsieur chevalier far off or near said kitty i shall always love you where the devil will constancy niche itself next murmured athos and i also said d'artagnan i also i shall always love you be sure of that but now answer me i attach great importance to the question i am about to put to you did you never hear talk of a young woman who was carried off one night there now oh monsieur chevalier do you love that woman still no no it is one of my friends who loves her monsieur athos this gentleman here i cried athos with an accent like that of a man who perceives he is about to tread upon an adder you to be sure said d'artagnan pressing athos's hand you know the interest we both take in this poor little madame bonacieux besides kitty will tell nothing will you kitty you understand my dear girl continued d'artagnan she is the wife of that frightful baboon you saw at the door as you came in oh my god you remind me of my fright if he should have known me again how know you again did you ever see that man before he came twice to milady's that's it about what time why about fifteen or eighteen days ago exactly so and yesterday evening he came again yesterday evening yes just before you came my dear athos we are enveloped in a network of spies and do you believe he knew you again kitty i pulled down my hood as soon as i saw him but perhaps it was too late go down athos he mistrusts you less than me and see if he be still at his door athos went down and returned immediately he is gone said he and the house door is shut he is gone to make his report and to say that all the pigeons are at this moment in the dovecote well then let us all fly said athos and leave nobody here but planchet to bring us news a minute aramis whom we have sent for that's true said athos we must wait for aramis at that moment aramis entered the matter was all explained to him and the friends gave him to understand that among all his high connections he must find a place for kitty aramis reflected for a minute and then said coloring will it be fully rendering you a service d'artagnan 
I shall be grateful to you all my life. Very well. Madame de Boitrecy asked me, for one of her friends who resides in the provinces, I believe, for a trustworthy maid. If you can, my dear D'Artagnan, answer for Mademoiselle. Oh, monsieur, be assured that I shall be entirely devoted to the person who will give me the means of quitting Paris. Then, said Aramis, this falls out very well. He placed himself at the table and wrote a little note which he sealed with a ring and gave the billet to Kitty. And now, my dear girl, said D'Artagnan, you know that it is not good for any of us to be here. Therefore let us separate. We shall meet again in better days. And whenever we find each other, in whatever place it may be, said Kitty, you will find me loving you as I love you today. Dicer's oaths, said Athos, while D'Artagnan went to conduct Kitty downstairs. An instant afterward the three young men separated, agreeing to meet again at four o'clock with Athos, and leaving Planchet to guard the house. Aramis returned home, and Athos and D'Artagnan busied themselves about pledging the sapphire. As the Gascon had foreseen, they easily obtained three hundred pistoles on the ring. Still further, the Jew told them that if they would sell it to him, as it would make a magnificent pendant for earrings, he would give five hundred pistoles for it. Athos and D'Artagnan, with the activity of two soldiers and the knowledge of two connoisseurs, hardly required three hours to purchase the entire equipment of the musketeer. Besides, Athos was very easy, and a noble to his fingers' ends. When a thing suited him he paid the price demanded, without thinking to ask for any abatement. D'Artagnan would have remonstrated at this, but Athos put his hand upon his shoulder with a smile, and D'Artagnan understood that it was all very well for such a little Gascon gentleman as himself to drive a bargain, but not for a man who had the bearing of a prince. The musketeer met with a superb Andalusian horse, black as jet, nostrils of fire, legs clean and elegant, rising six years. He examined him, and found him sound and without blemish. They asked a thousand livres for him. He might perhaps have been bought for less, but while D'Artagnan was discussing the price with the dealer, Athos was counting out the money on the table. Grimaud had a stout, short Picard cob, which cost three hundred livres. But when the saddle and arms for Grimaud were purchased, Athos had not a sou left of his hundred and fifty pistoles. D'Artagnan offered his friend a part of his share, which he should return when convenient. But Athos only replied to this proposal by shrugging his shoulders. "'How much did the Jew say he would give for the sapphire if he purchased it?' said Athos. Five hundred pistoles?' "'That is to say, two hundred more. A hundred pistoles for you, and a hundred pistoles for me. Well, now, that would be a real fortune to us, my friend.' let us go back to the jews again what will you this ring would certainly only recall very bitter remembrances then we shall never be masters of three hundred pistoles to redeem it so that we really should lose two hundred pistoles by the bargain go and tell him the ring is his d'artagnan and bring back the two hundred pistoles with you reflect athos ready money is needful for the present time and we must learn how to make sacrifices. Go, D'Artagnan, go. 
Grimaud will accompany you with his musketoon. A half hour afterward, D'Artagnan returned with the two thousand livres, and without having met with any accident. It was thus Athos found at home resources which he did not expect. End of chapter. Chapter thirty nine of The Three Musketeers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. Chapter thirty nine A Vision. At four o'clock the four friends were all assembled with Athos. Their anxiety about their outfits had all disappeared, and each countenance only preserved the expression of its own secret disquiet, for behind all present happiness is concealed a fear for the future. Suddenly Planchet entered, bringing two letters for D'Artagnan. The one was a little billet, genteelly folded, with a pretty seal in green wax on which was impressed a dove bearing a green branch. The other was a large square epistle, resplendent with the terrible arms of his eminence, the Cardinal Duke. At the sight of the little letter, the heart of D'Artagnan bounded, for he believed he recognized the handwriting, and although he had seen that writing but once, the memory of it remained at the bottom of his heart. He therefore seized the little epistle, and opened it eagerly. "'B,' said the letter, "'on Thursday next,' at from six to seven o'clock in the evening, on the road to Chaillot, and look carefully into the carriages that pass, but if you have any consideration for your own life or that of those who love you, do not speak a single word, do not make a movement which may lead anyone to believe you have recognized her who exposes herself to everything for the sake of seeing you but for an instant. No signature. "'That's a snare,' said Athos. "'Don't go, D'Artagnan.' "'And yet,' replied D'Artagnan, "'I think I recognize the writing.' "'It may be counterfeit,' said Athos. "'Between six and seven o'clock the road of Chaillot is quite deserted. You might as well go and ride in the forest of Bondy.' "'But suppose we all go,' said D'Artagnan. "'What the devil!' They won't devour us all four, four lackeys, horses, arms, and all. And besides, it will be a chance for displaying our new equipments, said Porthos. But if it is a woman who writes, said Aramis, and that woman desires not to be seen, remember, you compromise her, D'Artagnan, which is not the part of a gentleman. We will remain in the background, said Porthos, and he will advance alone. "'Yes, but a pistol-shot is easily fired from a carriage which goes at a gallop.' "'Bah!' said D'Artagnan. "'They will miss me. If they fire, we will ride after the carriage and exterminate those who may be in it. They must be enemies.' "'He is right,' said Porthos. "'Battle! Besides, we must try our own arms.' "'Bah! Let us enjoy that pleasure,' said Aramis, with his mild and careless manner. "'As you please,' said Athos. "'Gentlemen,' said D'Artagnan, "'it is half-past four, and we have scarcely time to be on the road of Chaillot by six. 
"'Besides, if we go out too late, nobody will see us,' said Porthos. "'And that will be a pity. Let us get ready, gentlemen.' "'But this second letter,' said Athos, "'you forget that. It appears to me, however, that the seal denotes that it deserves to be opened. For my part, I declare, D'Artagnan, I think it of much more consequence than the little piece of waste-paper you have so cunningly slipped into your bosom.' D'Artagnan blushed. "'Well,' said he, "'let us see, gentlemen, what are his eminence's commands.' And D'Artagnan unsealed the letter and read, "'Monsieur D'Artagnan, of the King's Guards, Company d'Essessar, is expected at the Palais Cardinal this evening at eight o'clock. Signed, La Houdinière, Captain of the Guards.' "'The devil!' said Athos. Here's a rendezvous much more serious than the other. "'I will go to the second after attending the first, said D'Artagnan. "'One is for seven o'clock, and the other for eight. There will be time for both.' "'Hm! I would not go at all,' said Aramis. "'A gallant knight cannot decline a rendezvous with a lady, but a prudent gentleman may excuse himself from not waiting on his eminence.' particularly when he has reason to believe he is not invited to make his compliments. "'I am of Aramis's opinion,' said Porthos. "'Gentlemen,' replied D'Artagnan, "'I have already received by Monsieur de Cavois a similar invitation from his eminence. I neglected it, and on the morrow a serious misfortune happened to me. Constance disappeared. Whatever may ensue, I will go.' "'If you are determined—' said Athos, do so. But the Bastille, said Aramis. Bah, you will get me out if they put me there, said D'Artagnan. To be sure we will, replied Aramis and Porthos, with admirable promptness and decision, as if that were the simplest thing in the world. To be sure we will get you out. But meantime, as we are to set off the day after tomorrow, you would do much better not to risk this Bastille. Let us do better than that, said Athos. Do not let us leave him during the whole evening. Let each of us wait at a gate of the palace with three musketeers behind him. If we see a close carriage, at all suspicious in appearance, come out, let us fall upon it. It is a long time since we have had a skirmish with the guards of Monsieur the Cardinal. Monsieur de Treville must think us dead. To a certainty, Athos said Aramis. You were meant to be a general of the army. What do you think of the plan, gentlemen? Admirable, replied the young men in chorus. Well, said Porthos, I will run to the hotel and engage our comrades to hold themselves in readiness by eight o'clock. The rendezvous, the Place du Palais Cardinal. Meantime, you see that the lackeys saddle the horses. I have no horse, said D'Artagnan, but that is of no consequence. I can take one of Monsieur de Treville's. That is not worth while, said Aramis. You can have one of mine. One of yours? How many have you, then? asked D'Artagnan. Three, replied Aramis, smiling. Certes, cried Athos, you are the best mounted poet of France or Navarre. "'Well, my dear Aramis, you don't want three horses? I cannot comprehend what induced you to buy three. "'Therefore I only purchase two, 
said Aramis. The third, then, fell from the clouds, I suppose? No, the third was brought to me this very morning, by a groom out of livery, who would not tell me in whose service he was, and who said he had received orders from his master. Or his mistress, interrupted D'Artagnan. That makes no difference, said Aramis, colouring and who affirmed, as I said, that he had received orders from his master or mistress to place the horse in my stable, without informing me whence it came. "'It is only to poets that such things happen,' said Athos gravely. "'Well, in that case we can manage famously,' said D'Artagnan. "'Which of the two horses will you ride, that which you bought or the one that was given to you?' that which was given to me assuredly you cannot for a moment imagine d'artagnan that i would commit such an offence toward the unknown giver interrupted d'artagnan or the mysterious benefactress said athos the one you bought will then become useless to you <laughs> nearly so and you selected it yourself with the greatest care the safety of the horseman you know depends almost always upon the goodness of his horse. Well, transfer it to me at the price it cost you? I was going to make you the offer, my dear D'Artagnan, giving you all the time necessary for repaying me such a trifle. How much did it cost you? Eight hundred livres. Here are forty double pistoles, my dear friend, said D'Artagnan, taking the sum from his pocket. I know that is the coin in which you were paid for your poems. You are rich, then? said Aramis. Rich! <laughs> richest, my dear fellow! And D'Artagnan chinked the remainder of his pistoles in his pocket. Send your saddle, then, to the Hotel of the Musketeers, and your horse can be brought back with ours. Very well, but it is already five o'clock, so make haste. A quarter of an hour afterwards, Porthos appeared at the end of the Rue Ferru on a very handsome genet. Mousqueton followed him upon an Auvergne horse, small but very handsome. Porthos was resplendent with joy and pride. At the same time, Aramis made his appearance at the other end of the street upon a superb English charger. Bazin followed him upon a roan, holding by the halter a vigorous Mecklenburg horse. This was D'Artagnan's mount. The two musketeers met at the gate. Athos and D'Artagnan watched their approach from the window. "'The devil!' cried Aramis. "'You have a magnificent horse there, Porthos.' "'Yes,' replied Porthos. "'It is the one that ought to have been sent to me at first. A bad joke of the husband substituted the other. But the husband has been punished since, and I have obtained full satisfaction.' Planchet and Grimaud appeared in their turn, leading their master's steeds. D'Artagnan and Athos put themselves into saddle with their companions, and all four set forward, Athos upon a horse he owed to a woman, Aramis on a horse he owed to his mistress, Porthos on a horse he owed to his procurator's wife, and D'Artagnan on a horse he owed to his good fortune, the best mistress possible. The lackeys followed. As Porthos had foreseen, the cavalcade produced a good effect, and if Madame Coquenard had met Porthos and seen what a superb appearance he made upon his handsome Spanish genet, 
she would not have regretted the bleeding she had inflicted upon the strong-box of her husband. Near the Louvre the four friends met with Monsieur de Treville, who was returning from Saint-Germain. He stopped them to offer his compliments upon their appointments, which in an instant drew around them a hundred gapers. D'Artagnan profited by the circumstance to speak to Monsieur de Treville of the letter with the great red seal and the cardinal's arms. It is well understood that he did not breathe a word about the other. Monsieur de Treville approved of the resolution he had adopted, and assured him that if on the morrow he did not appear, he himself would undertake to find him, let him be where he might. At this moment the clock of La Samaritaine struck six. The four friends pleaded an engagement, and took leave of Monsieur de Treville. A short gallop brought them to the road of Chaillot. The day began to decline. Carriages were passing and repassing. D'Artagnan, keeping at some distance from his friends, darted a scrutinizing glance into every carriage that appeared, but no face with which he was acquainted. At length, after waiting a quarter of an hour, and just as twilight was beginning to thicken, a carriage appeared, coming at a quick pace on the road of Sevres. A presentiment instantly told D'Artagnan that this carriage contained the person who had appointed the rendezvous. The young man was himself astonished to find his heart beat so violently. Almost instantly a female head was put out at the window, with two fingers placed upon her mouth, either to enjoin silence or to send him a kiss. D'Artagnan uttered a slight cry of joy. This woman, or rather this apparition, for the carriage passed with the rapidity of a vision, was Madame Bonacieux. By an involuntary movement and in spite of the injunction given, D'Artagnan put his horse into a gallop, and in a few strides overtook the carriage. But the window was hermetically closed, the vision had disappeared. D'Artagnan then remembered the injunction, If you value your own life or that of those who love you, remain motionless, and as if you had seen nothing. He stopped, therefore, trembling not for himself, but for the poor woman, who had evidently exposed herself to great danger by appointing this rendezvous. The carriage pursued its way, still going at a great pace, till it dashed into Paris and disappeared. D'Artagnan remained fixed to the spot, astounded and not knowing what to think. If it was Madame Bonacieux, and if she was returning to Paris, why this fugitive rendezvous? Why this simple exchange of a glance? Why this lost kiss? If on the other side it was not she, which was still quite possible, for the little light that remained rendered a mistake easy, might it not be the commencement of some plot against him through the allurement of this woman, for whom his love was known? His three companions joined him. All had plainly seen a woman's head appear at the window, but none of them, except Athos, knew Madame Bonacieux. The opinion of Athos was that it was indeed she, but less preoccupied by that pretty face than D'Artagnan, he had fancied he saw a second head, a man's head, inside the carriage. "'If that be the case,' said D'Artagnan, "'they are doubtless transporting her from one prison to another.' But what can they intend to do with a poor creature, and how shall I ever meet her again? Friend, said Athos gravely, remember that it is the dead alone with whom we are not likely to meet again on this earth. 
You know something of that, as well as I do, I think. Now, if your mistress is not dead, if it is she we have just seen, you will meet with her again some day or other. And perhaps, my God, added he with that misanthropic tone which was peculiar to him, perhaps sooner than you wish. Half-past seven had sounded. The carriage had been twenty minutes behind the time appointed. D'Artagnan's friends reminded him that he had a visit to pay, but at the same time bade him observe that there was yet time to retract. But D'Artagnan was at the same time impetuous and curious. He had made up his mind that he would go to the Palais Cardinal, and that he would learn what his eminence had to say to him. Nothing could turn him from his purpose. They reached the Rue Saint-Auré, and in the Place du Palais Cardinal they found the twelve invited musketeers, walking about in expectation of their comrades. There only they explained to them the matter in hand. D'Artagnan was well known among the honourable corps of the king's musketeers, in which it was known he would one day take his place. He was considered beforehand as a comrade. It resulted from these antecedents that everyone entered heartily into the purpose for which they met. Besides, it would not be unlikely that they would have an opportunity of playing either the cardinal or his people an ill turn, and for such expeditions these worthy gentlemen were always ready. Athos divided them into three groups, assumed the command of one, gave the second to Aramis and the third to Porthos, and then each group went and took their watch near an entrance. D'Artagnan, on his part, entered boldly at the principal gate. Although he felt himself ably supported, the young man was not without a little uneasiness as he ascended the great staircase step by step. His conduct toward Milady bore a strong resemblance to treachery, and he was very suspicious of the political relations which existed between that woman and the cardinal. Still further, de Ward, whom he had treated so ill, was one of the tools of his eminence, and D'Artagnan knew that while his eminence was terrible to his enemies, he was strongly attached to his friends. If de Ward has related all our affair to the cardinal, which is not to be doubted, and if he has recognized me, as is probable, I may consider myself almost as a condemned man, said D'Artagnan, shaking his head. But why has he waited till now? That's all plain enough. Milady has laid her complaints against me with that hypocritical grief which renders her so interesting, and this last offence has made the cup overflow. Fortunately, added he, my good friends are down yonder, and they will not allow me to be carried away without a struggle. Nevertheless, Monsieur de Treville's company of musketeers alone cannot maintain a war against the cardinal, who disposes of the forces of all France and before whom the queen is without power, and the king without will. D'Artagnan, my friend, you are brave, you are prudent, you have excellent qualities, but the women will ruin you. He came to this melancholy conclusion as he entered the antechamber. He placed his letter in the hands of the usher on duty, who led him into the waiting-room and passed on into the interior of the palace. In this waiting-room were five or six of the cardinal's guards, who recognized D'Artagnan, and knowing that it was he who had wounded Jussac, they looked upon him with a smile of singular meaning. This smile appeared to D'Artagnan to be of bad augury. 
only, as our Gaskin was not easily intimidated, or rather, thanks to a great pride natural to the men of his country, he did not allow one easily to see what was passing in his mind, when that which was passing at all resembled fear. He placed himself haughtily in front of Messieurs the Guards, and waited with his hand on his hip, in an attitude by no means deficient in majesty. The usher returned and made a sign to D'Artagnan to follow him. It appeared to the young man that the guards, on seeing him depart, chuckled among themselves. He traversed a corridor, crossed a grand saloon, entered a library, and found himself in the presence of a man seated at a desk and writing. The usher introduced him and retired without speaking a word. D'Artagnan remained standing and examined this man. D'Artagnan at first believed that he had to do with some judge examining his papers, but he perceived that the man at the desk wrote, or rather corrected, lines of unequal length, scanning the words on his fingers. He saw then that he was with a poet. At the end of an instant the poet closed his manuscript, upon the cover of which was written, Mirame, a tragedy in five acts, and raised his head. D'Artagnan recognized the cardinal. End of chapter. Chapter 40 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE THREE MUSKETEERS by Alexander Dumas CHAPTER Forty: A TERRIBLE VISION The cardinal leaned his elbow on his manuscript, his cheek upon his hand, and looked intently at the young man for a moment. No one had a more searching eye than the cardinal de Richelieu, and D'Artagnan felt this glance run through his veins like a fever. He, however, kept a good countenance, holding his hat in his hand and awaiting the good pleasure of his eminence, without too much assurance, but also without too much humility. "'Monsieur,' said the cardinal, "'are you a d'Artagnan from Berne?' "'Yes, monseigneur,' replied the young man. "'There are several branches of the d'Artagnan at Tarbes, and in its environs,' said the cardinal. "'To which do you belong?' I am the son of him who served in the religious wars under the great King Henry, the father of his gracious majesty. That is well. It is you who set out seven or eight months ago from your country to seek your fortune in the capital? Yes, Monseigneur. You came through Meung, where something befell you. I don't very well know what, but still something. Monseigneur, said D'Artagnan, this was what happened to me. "'Never mind, never mind,' resumed the cardinal, with a smile which indicated that he knew the story as well as he wished to relate it. "'You were recommended to Monsieur de Treville, were you not?' "'Yes, Monseigneur, but in that unfortunate affair at Meung—' "'The letter was lost,' replied his eminence. "'Yes, I know that. But Monsieur de Treville is a skilled physiognomist, who knows men at first sight.' and he placed you in the company of his brother-in-law, Monsieur Dessessart, 
leaving you to hope that one day or other you should enter the musketeers. Monseigneur is correctly informed, said D'Artagnan. Since that time many things have happened to you. You were walking one day behind the Chartreux, when it would have been better if you had been elsewhere. Then you took with your friends a journey to the water of Forge. They stopped on the road, but you continued yours. That is all very simple. You had business in England. Monseigneur, said D'Artagnan, quite confused, I went hunting at Windsor or elsewhere. That concerns nobody. I know, because it is my office to know everything. On your return you were received by an august personage, and I perceive with pleasure that you preserve the souvenir she gave you. D'Artagnan placed his hand upon the Queen's diamond, which he wore, and quickly turned the stone inward, but it was too late. The day after that you received a visit from Cavois, resumed the cardinal. He went to desire you to come to the palace. You have not returned that visit, and you were wrong. Monseigneur, I feared I had incurred disgrace with your eminence. How could that be, monsieur? Could you incur my displeasure by having followed the orders of your superiors with more intelligence and courage than another would have done? It is the people who do not obey that I punish, and not those who, like you, obey— but too well. As a proof, remember the date of the day on which I had you bidden to come to me, and seek in your memory for what happened to you that very night. That was the very evening when the abduction of Madame Bonacieux took place. D'Artagnan trembled, and he likewise recollected that during the past half-hour the poor woman had passed close to him, without doubt carried away by the same power that had caused her disappearance. In short, continued the cardinal, as I have heard nothing of you for some time past, I wish to know what you were doing. Besides, you owe me some thanks. You must yourself have remarked how much you have been considered in all the circumstances. D'Artagnan bowed with respect. That, continued the cardinal, arose not only from a feeling of natural equity, but likewise from a plan I have marked out with respect to you. D'Artagnan became more and more astonished. I wish to explain this plan to you on the day you received my first invitation, but you did not come. Fortunately, nothing is lost by this delay, and you are now about to hear it. Sit down there before me, D'Artagnan. You are gentleman enough not to listen standing." and the cardinal pointed with his finger to a chair for the young man, who was so astonished at what was passing that he awaited a second sign from his interlocutor before he obeyed. "'You are brave, Monsieur d'Artagnan,' continued his eminence. "'You are prudent, which is still better. I like men of head and heart. "'Don't be afraid,' said he, smiling. "'By men of heart I mean men of courage. But young as you are—' and scarcely entering into the world, you have powerful enemies. If you do not take great heed, they will destroy you. Alas, Monseigneur, replied the young man, very easily, no doubt, for they are strong and well supported, while I am alone. Yes, that's true, but alone as you are, 
You have done much already, and will do still more, I don't doubt. Yet you have need, I believe, to be guided in the adventurous career you have undertaken. For, if I mistake not, you came to Paris with the ambitious idea of making your fortune. I am at the age of extravagant hopes, Monseigneur, said D'Artagnan. There are no extravagant hopes but for fools, monsieur, and you are a man of understanding. Now, what would you say to an ensign's commission in my guards, and a company after the campaign? Ah, monseigneur! You accept it, do you not? Monseigneur, replied D'Artagnan, with an embarrassed air, how, you refuse? cried the cardinal, with astonishment. "'I am in his majesty's guards, monseigneur, and I have no reason to be dissatisfied.' "'But it appears to me that my guards, mine, are also his majesty's guards, and whoever serves in a French corps serves the king.' "'Monseigneur, your eminence has ill understood my words.' "'You want a pretext, do you not? I comprehend.' Well, you have this excuse. Advancement, the opening campaign, the opportunity which I offer you, so much for the world. As regards yourself, the need of protection, for it is fit you should know, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that I have received heavy and serious complaints against you. You do not consecrate your days and nights wholly to the King's service. D'Artagnan colored. In fact— said the cardinal, placing his hand upon the bundle of papers. I have here a whole pile which concerns you. I know you to be a man of resolution, and your services, well directed, instead of leading you to ill, might be very advantageous to you. Come, reflect and decide. Your goodness confounds me, Monseigneur, replied D'Artagnan and I am conscious of a greatness of soul in your eminence that makes me mean as an earthworm. But since Monseigneur permits me to speak freely— D'Artagnan paused. Yes, speak. Then I will presume to say that all my friends are in the king's musketeers and guards, and that by an inconceivable fatality my enemies are in the service of your eminence. I should, therefore, be ill-received here— and ill-regarded there if I accepted what Monseigneur offers me. Do you happen to entertain the haughty idea that I have not yet made you an offer equal to your value? asked the cardinal, with a smile of disdain. Monseigneur, your eminence is a hundred times too kind to me, and, on the contrary, I think I have not proved myself worthy of your goodness. The siege of La Rochelle is about to be resumed, Monseigneur. I shall serve under the eye of your eminence, and if I have the good fortune to conduct myself at the siege in such a manner as merits your attention, then I shall at least leave behind me some brilliant action to justify the protection with which you honour me. Everything is best in its time, Monseigneur. Hereafter, perhaps, I shall have the right of giving myself. At present, I shall appear to sell myself." "'That is to say, you refuse to serve me, monsieur,' said the cardinal, with a tone of vexation, through which, however, might be seen a sort of esteem. 
Remain free, then, and guard your hatreds and your sympathies. Monseigneur! Well, well, said the cardinal. I don't wish you any ill, but you must be aware that it is quite trouble enough to defend and recompense our friends. We owe nothing to our enemies, and let me give you a piece of advice. Take care of yourself, Monsieur d'Artagnan, for from the moment I withdraw my hand from behind you, I would not give an obelisk for your life. I will try to do so, Monseigneur, replied the Gascon with a noble confidence. Remember at a later period, and at a certain moment, if any mischance should happen to you, said Richelieu, significantly, that it was I who came to seek you, and that I did all in my power to prevent this misfortune befalling you. I shall entertain whatever may happen, said D'Artagnan, placing his hand upon his breast and bowing, an eternal gratitude toward your eminence for that which you now do for me. Well, let it be, then, as you have said, Monsieur d'Artagnan. We shall see each other again after the campaign. I will have my eye upon you, for I shall be there, replied the cardinal, pointing with his finger to a magnificent suit of armor he was to wear. And on our return, well, we will settle our account. Young man, said Richelieu, if I shall be able to say to you at another time what I have said to you to-day, I promise you to do so. This last expression of Richelieu's conveyed a terrible doubt. It alarmed D'Artagnan more than a menace would have done, for it was a warning. The cardinal then was seeking to preserve him from some misfortune which threatened him. He opened his mouth to reply, but with a haughty gesture the cardinal dismissed him. D'Artagnan went out, but at the door his heart almost failed him, and he felt inclined to return. Then the noble and severe countenance of Athos crossed his mind. If he had made the compact with the cardinal which he required, Athos would no more give him his hand. Athos would renounce him. It was this fear that restrained him, so powerful is the influence of a truly great character on all that surrounds it. D'Artagnan descended by the staircase at which he had entered, and found Athos and the four musketeers awaiting his appearance, and beginning to grow uneasy. With a word D'Artagnan reassured them, and Planchet ran to inform the other sentinels that it was useless to keep guard longer, as his master had come out safe from the Palais Cardinal. Returned home with Athos, Aramis and Porthos inquired eagerly the cause of the strange interview but D'Artagnan confined himself to telling them that Monsieur de Richelieu had sent for him to propose to him to enter into his guards with the rank of ensign, and that he had refused. "'And you were right!' cried Aramis and Porthos with one voice. Athos fell into a profound reverie and answered nothing. But when they were alone he said, "'You have done that which you ought to have done, D'Artagnan, but perhaps you have been wrong.' D'Artagnan sighed deeply, for this voice responded to a secret voice of his soul, which told him that great misfortunes awaited him. The whole of the next day was spent in preparations for departure. D'Artagnan went to take leave of Monsieur de Treville. At that time it was believed that the separation of the musketeers and the guards would be but momentary, the king holding his parliament that very day, 
and proposing to set out the day after. Monsieur de Treville contented himself with asking D'Artagnan if he could do anything for him, but D'Artagnan answered that he was supplied with all he wanted. That night brought together all those comrades of the guards of Monsieur de Cesar, and the company of musketeers of Monsieur de Treville, who had been accustomed to associate together. They were parting to meet again when it pleased God, and if it pleased God. That night, then, was somewhat riotous, as may be imagined. In such cases extreme preoccupation is only to be combated by extreme carelessness. At the first sound of the morning trumpet the friends separated, the musketeers hastening to the hotel of Monsieur de Treville, the guards to that of Monsieur de Cesar. Each of the captains then led his company to the Louvre, where the king held his review. The king was dull and appeared ill, which detracted a little from his usual lofty bearing. In fact, the evening before, a fever had seized him in the midst of the Parliament, while he was holding his bed of justice. He had, not the less, decided upon setting out that same evening, and in spite of the remonstrances that had been offered to him, he persisted in having the review, hoping by setting it at defiance to conquer the disease which began to lay hold upon him. The review over, the guards set forward alone on their march, the musketeers waiting for the king, which allowed Porthos time to go and take a turn in his superb equipment in the Rue aux Ors. The procurator's wife saw him pass in his new uniform and on his fine horse. She loved Porthos too dearly to allow him to part thus. She made him a sign to dismount and come to her. Porthos was magnificent. His spurs jingled, his cuirass glittered, his sword knocked proudly against his ample limbs. This time the clerks evinced no inclination to laugh. Such a real ear-clipper did Porthos appear. The musketeer was introduced to Monsieur Coquenard, whose little grey eyes sparkled with anger at seeing his cousin all blazing new. Nevertheless, one thing afforded him inward consolation. It was expected by everybody that the campaign would be a severe one. He whispered a hope to himself that this beloved relative might be killed in the field. Porthos paid his compliments to Monsieur Coquenard and bade him farewell. Monsieur Coquenard wished him all sorts of prosperities. As to Madame Coquenard, she could not restrain her tears, but no evil impressions were taken from her grief, as she was known to be very much attached to her relatives, about whom she was constantly having serious disputes with her husband. But the real adieu were made in Madame Coquenard's chamber. They were heart-rending. As long as the procurator's wife could follow him with her eyes, she waved her handkerchief to him, leaning so far out of the window as to lead people to believe she wished to precipitate herself. Porthos received all these attentions like a man accustomed to such demonstrations. Only on turning the corner of the street he lifted his hat gracefully, and waved it to her as a sign of adieu. On his part, Aramis wrote a long letter. To whom? Nobody knew. Kitty, who was to set out that evening for Tours, was waiting in the next chamber. Athos sipped the last bottle of his Spanish wine. In the meantime, D'Artagnan was defiling with his company. Arriving at the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, he turned round to look gaily at the Bastille. But, as it was the Bastille alone he looked at, he did not observe Milady. 
who, mounted upon a light chestnut horse, designated him with her finger to two ill-looking men who came close up to the ranks to take notice of him. To a look of interrogation which they made, Milady replied by a sign that it was he. Then, certain that there could be no mistake in the execution of her orders, she started her horse and disappeared. The two men followed the company, and on leaving the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, mounted two horses properly equipped, which a servant without livery had waiting for them. End of chapter Chapter 41 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE THREE MUSKETEERS By Alexander Dumas Chapter 41 THE SIEGE OF LA ROCHELLE The siege of La Rochelle was one of the great political events of the reign of Louis Thirteenth, and one of the great military enterprises of the Cardinal. It is, then, interesting and even necessary that we should say a few words about it, particularly as many details of this siege are connected in too important a manner with the story we have undertaken to relate to allow us to pass over it in silence. The political plans of the cardinal when he undertook this siege were extensive. Let us unfold them first, and then pass on to the private plans which perhaps had not less influence upon his eminence than the others. Of the important cities given up by Henry the Fourth to the Huguenots as places of safety, there only remained La Rochelle. It became necessary, therefore, to destroy this last bulwark of Calvinism, a dangerous leaven with which the ferments of civil revolt and foreign war were constantly mingling. Spaniards, Englishmen, and Italian malcontents, adventurers of all nations, and soldiers of fortune of every sect, flocked at the first summons under the standard of the Protestants, and organized themselves like a vast association, whose branches diverged freely over all parts of Europe. La Rochelle, which had derived a new importance from the ruin of the other Calvinist cities, was then the focus of dissensions and ambition. Moreover, its port was the last in the kingdom of France open to the English, and by closing it against England, our eternal enemy, the cardinal completed the work of Joan of Arc and the Duc de Guise. Thus Bassompierre, who was at once Protestant and Catholic, Protestant by conviction and Catholic as commander of the Order of the Holy Ghost, Bassompierre, who was a German by birth and a Frenchman at heart, in short, Bassompierre, who had a distinguished command at the siege of La Rochelle, said, in charging at the head of several other Protestant nobles like himself, You will see, gentlemen, that we shall be fools enough to take La Rochelle. And Bassompierre was right. The cannonade of the Isle of Ré presaged to him the dragonades of the Cévennes. The taking of La Rochelle was the preface to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. We have hinted that by the side of these views of the leveling and simplifying minister, which belong to history, 
the chronicler is forced to recognize the lesser motives of the amorous man and jealous rival. Richelieu, as everyone knows, had loved the queen. Was this love a simple political affair? Or was it naturally one of those profound passions which Anne of Austria inspired in those who approached her? That we are not able to say. But at all events, we have seen, by the anterior developments of this story, that Buckingham had the advantage over him, and in two or three circumstances, particularly that of the diamond studs, had, thanks to the devotedness of the three musketeers and the courage and conduct of D'Artagnan, cruelly mystified him. It was, then, Richelieu's object not only to get rid of an enemy of France, but to avenge himself on a rival. But this vengeance must be grand and striking, and worthy in every way of a man who held in his hand, as his weapon for combat, the forces of a kingdom. Richelieu knew that in combating England he combated Buckingham, that in triumphing over England he triumphed over Buckingham, in short, that in humiliating England in the eyes of Europe he humiliated Buckingham in the eyes of the Queen. On his side Buckingham, in pretending to maintain the honour of England, was moved by interests exactly like those of the Cardinal. Buckingham also was pursuing a private vengeance. Buckingham could not under any pretense be admitted into France as an ambassador. He wished to enter it as a conqueror. It resulted from this that the real stake in this game, which two most powerful kingdoms played for the good pleasure of two amorous men, was simply a kind look from Anne of Austria. The first advantage had been gained by Buckingham. Arriving unexpectedly in sight of the Isle of Ray with ninety vessels and nearly twenty thousand men, he had surprised the Comte de Toirat, who commanded for the king in the isle, and he had, after a bloody conflict, effected his landing. Allow us to observe in passing that in this fight perished the Baron de Chantal, that the Baron de Chantal left a little orphan girl eighteen months old, and that this little girl was afterward Madame de Sévigne. The Comte de Toirat retired into the citadel Saint-Martin with his garrison, and threw a hundred men into a little fort called the Fort of La Pré. This event had hastened the resolutions of the Cardinal, until the King and he could take the command of the siege of La Rochelle, which was determined, he had set Monsieur to direct the first operations, and had ordered all the troops he could dispose of to march toward the theatre of war. It was of this detachment, sent as a vanguard, that our friend D'Artagnan formed a part. The king, as we have said, was to follow as soon as his bed of justice had been held. But on rising from his bed of justice on the 28th of June, he felt himself attacked by fever. He was, notwithstanding, anxious to set out, but his illness becoming more serious, he was forced to stop at Villeroy. Now, whenever the king halted, the musketeers halted. It followed that D'Artagnan, who was as yet purely and simply in the guards, found himself, for the time at least, separated from his good friends Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. 
this separation, which was no more than an unpleasant circumstance, would have certainly become a cause of serious uneasiness if he had been able to guess by what unknown dangers he was surrounded. He, however, arrived without accident in the camp established before La Rochelle, on the 10th of the month of September, of the year 1627. Everything was in the same state. The Duke of Buckingham and his English, masters of the Isle of Ray, continued to besiege, but without success, the Citadel Saint-Martin and the Fort of La Pre. And hostilities with La Rochelle had commenced two or three days before, about a fort which the Duc d'Angoulême had caused to be constructed near the city. The guards, under the command of Monsieur Dessessar, took up their quarters at the Minimes, but, as we know, D'Artagnan, possessed with ambition to enter the musketeers, had formed but few friendships among his comrades, and he felt himself isolated and given up to his own reflections. His reflections were not very cheerful. From the time of his arrival in Paris, he had been mixed up with public affairs, but his own private affairs had made no great progress, either in love or fortune. As to love, the only woman he could have loved was Madame Bonacieux, and Madame Bonacieux had disappeared, without his being able to discover what had become of her. As to fortune, he had made, he, humble as he was, an enemy of the cardinal. That is to say, of a man before whom trembled the greatest men of the kingdom, beginning with the king. That man had the power to crush him, and yet he had not done so. For a mind so perspicacious as that of D'Artagnan, this indulgence was a light by which he caught a glimpse of a better future. Then he had made himself another enemy, less to be feared, he thought, but nevertheless he instinctively felt not to be despised. This enemy was Milady. In exchange for all this, he had acquired the protection and good will of the Queen, but the favour of the Queen was at the present time an additional cause of persecution, and her protection, as it was known, protected badly, as witness Chalet and Madame Bonacieux. What he had clearly gained in all this was the diamond, worth five or six thousand livres, which he wore on his finger. And even this diamond, supposing that D'Artagnan, in his projects of ambition, wished to keep it, to make it some day a pledge for the gratitude of the Queen, had not in the meanwhile, since he could not part with it, more value than the gravel he trod under his feet. We say the gravel he trod under his feet, for D'Artagnan made these reflections while walking solitarily along a pretty little road which led from the camp to the village of Angoutin. Now, these reflections had led him further than he intended, and the day was beginning to decline when, by the last ray of the setting sun, he thought he saw the barrel of a musket glitter from behind a hedge. D'Artagnan had a quick eye and a prompt understanding. He comprehended that the musket had not come there of itself, and that he who bore it had not concealed himself behind a hedge with any friendly intentions. He determined, therefore, to direct his course as clear from it as he could when, on the opposite side of the road, from behind a rock, he perceived the extremity of another musket. 
This was evidently an ambuscade. The young man cast a glance at the first musket and saw, with a certain degree of inquietude, that it was levelled in his direction. But as soon as he perceived that the orifice of the barrel was motionless, he threw himself upon the ground. At the same instant the gun was fired, and he heard the whistling of a ball pass over his head. No time was to be lost. D'Artagnan sprang up with a bound, and at the same instant the ball from the other musket tore up the gravel on the very spot on the road where he had thrown himself with his face to the ground. D'Artagnan was not one of those foolhardy men who seek a ridiculous death in order that it may be said of them that they did not retreat a single step. Besides, courage was out of the question here. D'Artagnan had fallen into an ambush. "'If there is a third shot,' said he to himself, "'I am a lost man!' He immediately, therefore, took to his heels and ran toward the camp with the swiftness of the young men of his country, so renowned for their agility, but whatever might be his speed, the first two fired, having had time to reload, fired a second shot, and this time so well aimed that it struck his hat, and carried it ten paces from him. As he, however, had no other hat, he picked up this as he ran, and arrived at his quarters very pale and quite out of breath. He sat down without saying a word to anybody, and began to reflect. This event might have three causes. The first, and the most natural, was that it might be an ambuscade of the Rochelais, who might not be sorry to kill one of His Majesty's guards, because it would be an enemy the less, and this enemy might have a well-furnished purse in his pocket. D'Artagnan took his hat, examined the hole made by the ball, and shook his head. The ball was not a musket-ball. It was an arquebus-ball. The accuracy of the aim had first given him the idea that a special weapon had been employed. This could not, then, be a military ambuscade, as the ball was not of the regular calibre. This might be a kind remembrance of Monsieur the Cardinal. It may be observed that at the very moment when, thanks to the ray of the sun, he perceived the gun-barrel, he was thinking with astonishment on the forbearance of his eminence with respect to him. But D'Artagnan again shook his head. For people toward whom he had but to put forth his hand, his eminence had rarely recourse to such means. It might be a vengeance of Milady. Ah, that was most probable. He tried in vain to remember the faces or dress of the assassins. He had escaped so rapidly that he had not had leisure to notice anything. "'Ah, my poor friends,' murmured D'Artagnan, "'where are you, and that you should fail me?' D'Artagnan passed a very bad night. Three or four times he started up, imagining that a man was approaching his bed for the purpose of stabbing him. Nevertheless, day dawned without darkness having brought any accident. But D'Artagnan well suspected that that which was deferred was not relinquished. D'Artagnan remained all day in his quarters, assigning as a reason to himself that the weather was bad. At nine o'clock the next morning the drums beat to arms. The Duc d'Orléans visited the posts. The guards were under arms, and D'Artagnan took his place in the midst of his comrades. Monsieur passed along the front of the line. Then all the superior officers approached him to pay their compliments, 
Monsieur Dessissart, captain of the guards, as well as the others. At the expiration of a minute or two, it appeared to D'Artagnan that Monsieur Dessissart made him a sign to approach. He waited for a fresh gesture on the part of his superior, for fear he might be mistaken, but this gesture being repeated, he left the ranks and advanced to receive orders. "'Monsieur is about to ask for some men of good will for a dangerous mission, but one which will do honour to those who shall accomplish it, and I made you a sign in order that you might hold yourself in readiness.' "'Thanks, my captain,' replied D'Artagnan, who wished for nothing better than an opportunity to distinguish himself under the eyes of the lieutenant-general. In fact, the Rochelet had made a sortie during the night, and had retaken a bastion of which the royal army had gained possession two days before. The matter was to ascertain, by reconnoitering, how the enemy guarded this bastion. At the end of a few minutes, Monsieur raised his voice and said, "'I want for this mission three or four volunteers, led by a man who can be depended upon.' "'As to the man to be depended upon, I have him under my hand, monsieur,' said Monsieur Dessessar, pointing to D'Artagnan, "'and as to the four or five volunteers, monsieur has but to make his intentions known, and the men will not be wanting.' Four men of good will who will risk being killed with me,' said D'Artagnan, raising his sword. Two of his comrades of the guards immediately sprang forward, and two other soldiers, having joined them, the number was deemed sufficient. D'Artagnan declined all others, being unwilling to take the first chance from those who had the priority. It was not known whether, after the taking of the bastion, the Rochelet had evacuated it, or left a garrison in it. The object, then, was to examine the place near enough to verify the reports. D'Artagnan set out with his four companions, and followed the trench. The two guards marched abreast with him, and the two soldiers followed behind. They arrived thus, screened by the lining of the trench, till they came within a hundred paces of the bastion. There, on turning round, D'Artagnan perceived that the two soldiers had disappeared. He thought that, beginning to be afraid, they had stayed behind, and he continued to advance. At the turning of the counterscarp, they found themselves within about sixty paces of the bastion. They saw no one, and the bastion seemed abandoned. The three composing our forlorn hope were deliberating whether they should proceed any further, when all at once a circle of smoke enveloped the giant of stone, and a dozen balls came whistling around D'Artagnan and his companion. They knew all they wished to know. The bastion was guarded. A longer stay in this dangerous spot would have been useless imprudence. D'Artagnan and his two companions turned their backs, and commenced a retreat which resembled a flight. On arriving at the angle of the trench which was to serve them as a rampart, one of the guardsmen fell. A ball had passed through his breast. The other, who was safe and sound, continued his way toward the camp. D'Artagnan was not willing to abandon his companion thus, and stooped to raise him and assist him in regaining the lines. But at this moment two shots were fired. One ball struck the head of the already wounded guard, and the other flattened itself against a rock, after having passed within two inches of D'Artagnan. The young man turned quickly round, 
for this attack could not have come from the bastion, which was hidden by the angle of the trench. The idea of the two soldiers who had abandoned him occurred to his mind, and with them he remembered the assassins of two evenings before. He resolved this time to know with whom he had to deal, and fell upon the body of his comrade as if he were dead. He quickly saw two heads appear above an abandoned work within thirty paces of him. They were the heads of the two soldiers. D'Artagnan had not been deceived. These two men had only followed for the purpose of assassinating him, hoping that the young man's death would be placed to the account of the enemy. As he might be only wounded and might denounce their crime, they came up to him with the purpose of making sure. Fortunately, deceived by D'Artagnan's trick, they neglected to reload their guns. When they were within ten paces of him, D'Artagnan, who in falling had taken care not to let go his sword, sprang up close to them. The assassins comprehended that if they fled toward the camp without having killed their man, they should be accused by him. Therefore their first idea was to join the enemy. One of them took his gun by the barrel and used it as he would a club. He aimed a terrible blow at D'Artagnan, who avoided it by springing to one side. But by this movement he left a passage free to the bandit, who darted off toward the bastion. As the Rochelais who guarded the bastion were ignorant of the intentions of the man they saw coming toward them, they fired upon him, and he fell, struck by a ball which broke his shoulder. Meantime, D'Artagnan had thrown himself upon the other soldier, attacking him with his sword. The conflict was not long. The wretch had nothing to defend himself with but his discharged arquebus. The sword of the guardsman slipped along the barrel of the now useless weapon, and passed through the thigh of the assassin, who fell. D'Artagnan immediately placed the point of his sword at his throat. "'Oh, oh, do not kill me!' cried the bandit. "'Pardon, pardon, my officer! I will tell you all!' "'Is your secret of enough importance to me, to spare your life for it?' asked the young man, withholding his arm. "'Yes, if you think existence worth anything to a man of twenty, as you are, and who may hope for everything, being handsome and brave, as you are.' "'Wretch!' cried D'Artagnan. "'Speak quickly! Who employed you to assassinate me?' A woman whom I don't know, but who is called Milady. But if you don't know this woman, how do you know her name? My comrade knows her, and called her so. It was with him she agreed, not with me. He even has in his pocket a letter from that person, who attaches great importance to you, as I have heard him say. But how did you become concerned in this villainous affair? He proposed to me to undertake it with him, and I agreed. And how much did she give you for this fine enterprise? A hundred louis. Well, come, said the young man, laughing. She thinks I am worth something. A hundred louis. Well, that was a temptation for two wretches like you. I understand why you accepted it, and I grant you my pardon, but upon one condition. What is that? said the soldier uneasy at perceiving that all was not over, that you will go and fetch me the letter your comrade has in his pocket. But, cried the bandit, that is only another way of killing me. How can I go and fetch that letter under the fire of the bastion? You must nevertheless make up your mind to go and get it, or I swear you shall die by my hand. 
pardon monsieur pity in the name of that young lady you love and whom you perhaps believe dead but who is not cried the bandit throwing himself upon his knees and leaning upon his hand for he began to lose his strength with his blood and how do you know there is a young woman whom i love and that i believe that woman dead asked d'artagnan by that letter which my comrade has in his pocket you see then said d'artagnan that i must have that letter so no more delay no more hesitation or else whatever may be my repugnance to soiling my sword a second time with the blood of a wretch like you i swear by my faith as an honest man and at these words d'artagnan made so fierce a gesture that the wounded man sprang up stop stop cried he regaining strength by force of terror i will go i will go d'artagnan took the soldier's arquebus made him go on before him and urged him toward his companion by pricking him behind with his sword it was a frightful thing to see this wretch leaving a long track of blood on the ground he passed over pale with approaching death trying to drag himself along without being seen to the body of his accomplice which lay twenty paces from him terror was so strongly painted on his face covered with a cold sweat that d'artagnan took pity on him and casting upon him a look of contempt stop said he i will show you the difference between a man of courage and such a coward as you stay where you are i will go myself and with a light step an eye on the watch observing the movements of the enemy and taking advantage of the accidents of the ground d'artagnan succeeded in reaching the second soldier there were two means of gaining his object to search him on the spot or to carry him away making a buckler of his body and search him in the trench d'artagnan preferred the second means and lifted the assassin onto his shoulders at the moment the enemy fired a slight shock the dull noise of three balls which penetrated the flesh a last cry a convulsion of agony proved to d'artagnan that the would-be assassin had saved his life d'artagnan regained the trench and threw the corpse beside the wounded man who was as pale as death then he began to search a leather pocket-book a purse in which was evidently a part of the sum which the bandit had received with a dice-box and dice completed the possessions of the dead man he left the box and dice where they fell threw the purse to the wounded man and eagerly opened the pocket-book among some unimportant papers he found the following letter that which he had sought at the risk of his life since you have lost sight of that woman and she is now in safety in the convent which you should never have allowed her to reach try at least not to miss the man if you do you know that my hand stretches far and that you shall pay very dearly for the hundred louis you have from me no signature nevertheless it was plain the letter came from milady he consequently kept it as a piece of evidence and being in safety behind the angle of the trench he began to interrogate the wounded man he confessed that he had undertaken with his comrade the same who was killed to carry off a young woman who was to leave paris by the barriere de la valette but having stopped to drink at a cabaret they had missed the carriage by ten minutes but what were you to do with that woman asked d'artagnan with anguish 
"'We were to have conveyed her to a hotel in the Place Royale,' said the wounded man. "'Yes, yes,' murmured D'Artagnan. "'That's the place, Milady's own residence.' Then the young man tremblingly comprehended what a terrible thirst for vengeance urged this woman on to destroy him, as well as all who loved him, and how well she must be acquainted with the affairs of the court, since she had discovered all. There could be no doubt she owed this information to the cardinal. But amid all this he perceived, with a feeling of real joy, that the queen must have discovered the prison in which poor Madame Bonacieux was explaining her devotion, and that she had freed her from that prison, and the letter he had received from the young woman, and her passage along the road of Chaillot like an apparition, were now explained. Then also, as Athos had predicted, it became possible to find Madame Bonacieux, and a convent was not impregnable. This idea completely restored clemency to his heart. He turned toward the wounded man, who had watched with intense anxiety all the various expressions of his countenance, and holding out his arm to him, said, "'Come, I will not abandon you thus. Lean upon me, and let us return to the camp.' "'Yes,' said the man, who could scarcely believe in such magnanimity. "'But it is not to have me hanged?' "'You have my word,' said he. "'For the second time I give you your life.' The wounded man sank upon his knees, to again kiss the feet of his preserver, but D'Artagnan, who had no longer a motive for staying so near the enemy, abridged the testimonials of his gratitude. The guardsman who had returned at the first discharge announced the death of his four companions. They were therefore much astonished and delighted in the regiment when they saw the young man come back safe and sound. D'Artagnan explained the sword wound of his companion by a sortie which he improvised. He described the death of the other soldier, and the perils they had encountered. This recital was for him the occasion of veritable triumph. The whole army talked of this expedition for a day, and Monsieur paid him his compliments upon it. Besides this, as every great action bears its recompense with it, the brave exploit of D'Artagnan resulted in the restoration of the tranquillity he had lost. In fact, D'Artagnan believed that he might be tranquil, as one of his two enemies was killed, and the other devoted to his interests. This tranquillity proved one thing, that D'Artagnan did not yet know Milady. End of chapter Chapter 42 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 42 The Anjou Wine After the most disheartening news of the king's health, a report of his convalescence began to prevail in the camp, and as he was very anxious to be in person at the siege, it was said that as soon as he could mount a horse, he would set forward. Meantime, Monsieur, who knew that from one day to the other he might expect to be removed from his command by the Duc d'Angoulême, by Bassompierre, or by Schomberg, who were all eager for his post, did but little, lost his days in wavering, 
and did not dare to attempt any great enterprise to drive the English from the Isle of Ray, where they still besieged the citadel Saint-Martin and the fort of La Prée, as on their side the French were besieging La Rochelle. D'Artagnan, as we have said, had become more tranquil, as always happens after a past danger, particularly when the danger seems to have vanished. He only felt one uneasiness, and that was at not hearing any tidings from his friends. But one morning at the commencement of the month of November everything was explained to him by this letter, dated from Villeroy. Monsieur d'Artagnan, Messieurs Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, after having had an entertainment at my house, and enjoying themselves very much, created such a disturbance that the provost of the castle, a rigid man, has ordered them to be confined for some days. But I accomplished the order they have given me by forwarding to you a dozen bottles of my Anjou wine, with which they are much pleased. They are desirous that you should drink to their health in their favourite wine. I have done this, and am, monsieur, with great respect, your very humble and obedient servant, Godot, purveyor of the musketeers. "'That's all well,' cried D'Artagnan. "'They think of me in their pleasures as I think of them in my troubles. Well, I will certainly drink to their health with all my heart, but I will not drink alone.' And D'Artagnan went among those guardsmen with whom he had formed greater intimacy than with the others, to invite them to enjoy with him this present of delicious Anjou wine which had been sent him from Villeroy. One of the two guardsmen was engaged that evening, and another the next, so the meeting was fixed for the day after that. D'Artagnan, on his return, sent the twelve bottles of wine to the refreshment room of the guards, with strict orders that great care should be taken of it, and then, on the day appointed, as the dinner was fixed for midday, D'Artagnan sent Planchet at nine in the morning to assist in preparing everything for the entertainment. Planchet, very proud of being raised to the dignity of landlord, thought he would make all ready like an intelligent man, and with this view called in the assistance of the lackey of one of his master's guests, named Fourreau, and the false soldier who had tried to kill D'Artagnan, and who, belonging to no corps, had entered into the service of D'Artagnan, or rather of Planchet, after D'Artagnan had saved his life. The hour of the banquet being come, the two guards arrived, took their places, and the dishes were arranged on the table. Planchet waited, towel on arm. Foreau uncorked the bottles, and Brisemont, which was the name of the convalescent, poured the wine, which was a little shaken by its journey, carefully into decanters. Of this wine, the first bottle being a little thick at the bottom, Brisemont poured the lees into a glass and D'Artagnan desired him to drink it, for the poor devil had not yet recovered his strength. The guests, having eaten the soup, were about to lift the first glass of wine to their lips, when all at once the cannons sounded from Fort Louis and Fort Neuf. The guardsmen, imagining this to be caused by some unexpected attack, either of the besieged or the English, sprang to their swords. D'Artagnan, not less forward than they, did likewise, and all ran out in order to repair to their posts. But scarcely were they out of the room before they were made aware of the cause of this noise. Cries of, Live the king! Live the cardinal! resounded on every side, and the drums were beaten in all directions. In short, 
the king, impatient, as has been said, had come by forced marches, and had that moment arrived with all his household and a reinforcement of ten thousand troops. His musketeers proceeded and followed him. D'Artagnan, placed in line with his company, saluted with an expressive gesture his three friends, whose eyes soon discovered him, and Monsieur de Treville, who detected him at once. The ceremony of reception over, the four friends were soon in one another's arms. "'Pardieu!' cried D'Artagnan. "'You could not have arrived in better time. The dinner cannot have had time to get cold. Can it, gentlemen?' added the young man, turning to the two guards, whom he introduced to his friends. "'Ah! Ha!' said Porthos. "'It appears we are feasting.' "'I hope,' said Aramis, "'there are no women at your dinner.' "'Is there any drinkable wine in your tavern?' asked Athos. "'Well, pardieu, there is yours, my dear friend,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Our wine,' said Athos, astonished. "'Yes, that you sent me.' "'We sent you wine?' <laughs> "'You know very well the wine from the hills of Anjou.' "'Yes, I know what brand you are talking about.' "'The wine you prefer.' "'Well, in the absence of Champagne and Chambertin, you must content yourselves with that.' "'And so, connoisseurs in wine as we are, we have sent you some Anjou wine?' said Porthos. "'Not exactly. It is the wine that was sent by your order.' "'On our account?' said the three musketeers. "'Did you send this wine, Aramis?' said Athos. "'No, and you, Porthos?' no and you Athos. no if it was not you it was your purveyor said d'artagnan our purveyor yes your purveyor godot the purveyor of the musketeers my faith never mind where it comes from said porthos let us taste it and if it is good <laughs> let us drink it no said Athos. don't let us drink wine which comes from an unknown source you are right, Athos, said D'Artagnan. Did none of you charge your purveyor, Godot, to send me some wine? No, and yet you say he has sent you some, as from us. Here is his letter, said D'Artagnan, and he presented the note to his comrades. This is not his writing, said Athos. I am acquainted with it. Before we left Villeroy, I settled the accounts of the regiment. A false letter altogether, said Porthos. We have not been disciplined. D'Artagnan, said Aramis, in a reproachful tone, how could you believe that we had made a disturbance? D'Artagnan grew pale, and a convulsive trembling shook all his limbs. Thou alarmest me, said Athos, who never used thee and thou but upon very particular occasions. What has happened? Look you, my friends, cried D'Artagnan. A horrible suspicion crosses my mind. Can this be another vengeance of that woman? It was now Athos who turned pale. D'Artagnan rushed toward the refreshment room, the three musketeers and the two guards following him. The first object that met the eyes of D'Artagnan on entering the room was Brisemont, stretched upon the ground and rolling in horrible convulsions. Planchet and Foreau, as pale as death, were trying to give him succor, but it was plain that all assistance was useless, 
all the features of the dying man were distorted with agony. "'Oh!' cried he, on perceiving D'Artagnan. "'Oh! This is frightful! You pretend to pardon me, and you poison me!' "'I!' cried D'Artagnan. "'I, wretch! What do you say?' i say that it was you who gave me the wine i say that it was you who desired me to drink it i say you wish to avenge yourself on me and i say that it is horrible do not think so brisemont said d'artagnan do not think so i swear to you i protest oh but god is above god will punish you my god grant that he may some day suffer what i suffer upon the gospel said d'artagnan throwing himself down by the dying man i swear to you that the wine was poisoned and that i was going to drink of it as you did i do not believe you cried the soldier and he expired amid terrible tortures frightful frightful murmured Athos, while Porthos broke the bottles and Aramis gave orders, a little too late, that a confessor should be sent for. "'Oh, my friends,' said D'Artagnan, "'you come once more to save my life, not only mine, but that of these gentlemen.' "'Gentlemen,' continued he, addressing the guardsman, "'I request you will be silent with regard to this adventure. Great personages may have had a hand in what you have seen.' and if talked about, the evil would only recoil upon us. "'Ah, monsieur!' stammered Planchet, more dead than alive. "'Ah, monsieur, what an escape I have had! How, sirrah, were you going to drink my wine?' Uh, "'To the health of the king, monsieur. I was going to drink a small glass of it if Foreau had not told me I was called.' "'Alas!' said Foreau, whose teeth chattered with terror. I wanted to get him out of the way that I might drink myself. Gentlemen, said D'Artagnan, addressing the guardsman, you may easily comprehend that such a feast can only be very dull after what has taken place. So accept my excuses, and put off the party till another day, I beg of you. The two guardsmen courteously accepted D'Artagnan's excuses, and perceiving that the four friends desired to be alone, retired. When the young guardsmen and the three musketeers were without witnesses, they looked at one another with an air which plainly expressed that each of them perceived the gravity of their situation. "'In the first place,' said Athos, "'let us leave this chamber. The dead are not agreeable company, particularly when they have died a violent death.' "'Planchet,' said D'Artagnan, "'I commit the corpse of this poor devil to your care.' Let him be interred in holy ground. He committed a crime, it is true, but he repented of it. And the four friends quit the room, leaving to Planchet and Foreau the duty of paying mortuary honours to Brisemont. The host gave them another chamber, and served them with fresh eggs and some water, which Athos went himself to draw at the fountain. In a few words, Porthos and Aramis were posted as to the situation. "'Well,' said D'Artagnan to Athos, "'you see, my dear friend, that this is war to the death.' Athos shook his head. "'Yes, yes,' replied he. "'I perceive that plainly, but do you really believe it is she?' 
I am sure of it. Nevertheless, I confess I still doubt. But the fleur-de-lis on her shoulder. She is some Englishwoman who has committed a crime in France, and has been branded in consequence. Athos, she is your wife, I tell you, repeated D'Artagnan. Only reflect how much the two descriptions resemble each other. Yes, but I should think the other must be dead. I hanged her so effectually. It was D'Artagnan who now shook his head in his turn. But in either case, what is to be done? said the young man. The fact is, one cannot remain thus, with a sword hanging eternally over his head, said Athos. We must extricate ourselves from this position. But how? Listen. You must try to see her, and have an explanation with her. Say to her, peace or war. My word is a gentleman never to say anything of you, never to do anything against you. On your side, a solemn oath to remain neutral with respect to me. If not, I will apply to the Chancellor, I will apply to the King, I will apply to the Hangman, I will move the courts against you, I will denounce you as branded, I will bring you to trial, and if you are acquitted, well, by the faith of a gentleman, I will kill you at the corner of some wall, as I would a mad dog. I like the means well enough, said D'Artagnan, but where and how to meet with her? Time, dear friend, time brings round opportunity. Opportunity is the martingale of man. The more we have ventured, the more we gain, when we know how to wait. Yes, but to wait surrounded by assassins and poisoners. Bah, said Athos, God has preserved us hitherto, God will preserve us still. Yes, we, besides, we are men, and everything considered, it is our lot to risk our lives. But she, asked he, in an undertone, what she, asked Athos, Constance, Madame Bonacieux, ah, that's true, said Athos, my poor friend, I had forgotten you were in love. Well, but, said Aramis, have you not learned by the letter you found on the wretched corpse that she is in a convent? One may be very comfortable in a convent and as soon as the siege of La Rochelle is terminated, I promise you, on my part. Good! cried Athos. Good! Yes, my dear Aramis, we all know that your views have a religious tendency. I am only temporarily a musketeer, said Aramis, humbly. It is some time since we heard from his mistress, said Athos, in a low voice, but take no notice, we know all about that. "'Well,' said Porthos, "'it appears to me that the means are very simple.' "'What?' asked D'Artagnan. "'You say she is in a convent?' replied Porthos. "'Yes.' "'Very well. As soon as the siege is over, we'll carry her off from that convent.' "'But we must first learn what convent she is in.' "'That's true,' said Porthos. "'But I think I have it,' said Athos. Don't you say, dear D'Artagnan, that it is the queen who has made choice of the convent for her? I believe so, at least. In that case, Porthos will assist us. And how so, if you please? Why, by your marchioness, your duchess, your princess. She must have a long arm. Hush! said Porthos, placing a finger on his lips. 
I believe her to be a cardinalist. She must know nothing of the matter. Then, said Aramis, I take upon myself to obtain intelligence of her. You, Aramis, cried the three friends, you, and how? By the Queen's almoner, to whom I am very intimately allied, said Aramis, colouring. And on this assurance, the four friends, who had finished their modest repast, separated, with a promise of meeting again that evening. D'Artagnan returned to less important affairs, and the three musketeers repaired to the king's quarters, where they had to prepare their lodging. End of chapter Chapter 43 of The Three Musketeers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas Chapter 43 The Sign of the Red Dovecoat Meanwhile the king, who, with more reason than the cardinal, showed his hatred for Buckingham, although scarcely arrived, was in such a haste to meet the enemy, that he commanded every disposition to be made to drive the English from the Isle of Ray, and afterward to press the siege of La Rochelle. But notwithstanding his earnest wish, he was delayed by the dissensions which broke out between Messieurs Bassompierre and Schomberg against the Duc d'Angoulême. Messieurs Bassompierre and Schomberg were marshals of France, and claimed their right of commanding the army under the orders of the king. But the cardinal, who feared that Bassompierre, a Huguenot at heart, might press but feebly the English and Rochelais, his brothers in religion, supported the Duc d'Angoulême, whom the king, at his instigation, had named lieutenant-general. The result was that to prevent Messieurs Bassompierre and Schomberg from deserting the army, a separate command had to be given to each. Bassompierre took up his quarters on the north of the city, between Le and Dompierre, the Duc d'Angoulême on the east, from Dompierre to Perigny, and Monsieur de Schomberg on the south, from Perigny to Angoutin. The quarters of Monsieur were at Dompierre. The quarters of the king were sometimes at Estrée, sometimes at Jarry. The cardinal's quarters were upon the downs, at the bridge of La Pierre, in a simple house without any entrenchment. So that Monsieur watched Bassompierre, the king, the Duc d'Angoulême, and the cardinal, Monsieur de Schomberg. As soon as this organization was established, they set about driving the English from the isle. The juncture was favorable. The English, who require, above everything, good living in order to be good soldiers, only eating salt meat and bad biscuit, had many invalids in their camp. Still further, the sea, very rough at this period of the year all along the sea-coast, destroyed every day some little vessel, and the shore, from the point of Laguillon to the trenches, was at every tide literally covered with the wrecks of pinnacles, ruberges, and philuccas. The result was that even if the king's troops remained quietly in their camp, it was evident that some day or other Buckingham, who only continued in the isle from obstinacy, would be obliged to raise the siege. But as Monsieur de Troyes gave information that everything was preparing in the enemy's camp for a fresh assault, the king judged that it would be best to put an end to the affair, 
and gave the necessary orders for a decisive action. As it is not our intention to give a journal of the siege, but on the contrary only to describe such of the events of it as are connected with the story we are relating, we will content ourselves with saying in two words that the expedition succeeded, to the great astonishment of the king and the great glory of the cardinal. The English, repulsed foot by foot, beaten in all encounters, and defeated in the passage of the Isle of Louis, were obliged to re-embark, leaving on the field of battle two thousand men, among whom were five colonels, three lieutenant colonels, two hundred and fifty captains, twenty gentlemen of rank, four pieces of cannon, and sixty flags, which were taken to Paris by Claude de Saint-Simon, and suspended with great pomp in the arches of Notre-Dame. Te Deums were chanted in camp and afterward throughout France. The cardinal was left free to carry on the siege, without having, at least at the present, anything to fear on the part of the English. But it must be acknowledged this response was but momentary. An envoy of the Duke of Buckingham, named Montague, was taken, and proof was obtained of a league between the German Empire, Spain, England, and Lorraine. This league was directed against France. Still further, in Buckingham's lodging, which he had been forced to abandon more precipitately than he expected, papers were found which confirmed this alliance and which, as the cardinal asserts in his memoirs, strongly compromised Madame de Chevreuse and, consequently, the Queen. It was upon the cardinal that all the responsibility fell, for one is not a despotic minister without responsibility. All, therefore, of the vast resources of his genius were at work night and day, engaged in listening to the least report heard in any of the great kingdoms of Europe. The cardinal was acquainted with the activity, and more particularly the hatred of Buckingham. If the league which threatened France triumphed, all his influence would be lost. Spanish policy and Austrian policy would have their representatives in the cabinet of the Louvre, where they had as yet but partisans, and he, Richelieu, the French minister, the national minister, would be ruined. The king, even while obeying him like a child, hated him as a child hates his master, and would abandon him to the personal vengeance of Monsieur and the Queen. He would then be lost, and France perhaps with him. All this must be prepared against. Courtiers, becoming every instant more numerous, succeeded one another, day and night, in the little house of the bridge of La Pierre, in which the cardinal had established his residence. There were monks who wore the frock with such an ill grace that it was easy to perceive they belonged to the church militant. Women, a little inconvenienced by their costume as pages, and whose large trousers could not entirely conceal their rounded forms, and peasants with blackened hands but with fine limbs, savouring of the man of quality a league off. There were also less agreeable visits, for two or three times reports were spread that the cardinal had nearly been assassinated. It is true that the enemies of the cardinal said that it was he himself who set these bungling assassins to work, in order to have, if wanted, the right of using reprisals, but we must not believe everything ministers say, nor everything their enemies say. These attempts did not prevent the cardinal, to whom his most inveterate detractors have never denied personal bravery, 
from making nocturnal excursions, sometimes to communicate to the Duc d'Angoulême important orders, sometimes to confer with the king, and sometimes to have an interview with a messenger whom he did not wish to see at home. On their part, the musketeers, who had not much to do with the siege, were not under very strict orders, and led a joyous life. This was the more easy for our three companions in particular, for being friends of Monsieur de Treville, they obtained from him special permission to be absent after the closing of the camp. Now, one evening when D'Artagnan, who was in the trenches, was not able to accompany them, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, mounted on their battle-steeds, enveloped in their war-cloaks, with their hands upon their pistol-butts, were returning from a drinking-place called the Red Dovecote, which Athos had discovered two days before upon the route to Jarry, following the road which led to the camp, and quite on their guard, as we have stated, for fear of an ambuscade, when, about a quarter of a league from the village of Boisnau, they fancied they heard the sound of horses approaching them. They immediately all three halted, closed in, and waited, occupying the middle of the road. In an instant, and as the moon broke from behind a cloud, they saw at a turning of the road two horsemen who, on perceiving them, stopped in their turn, appearing to deliberate whether they should continue their route or go back. The hesitation created some suspicion in the three friends, and Athos, advancing a few paces in front of the others, cried in a firm voice, "'Who goes there?' "'Who goes there yourselves?' replied one of the horsemen. "'That is not an answer,' replied Athos. "'Who goes there? Answer, or we charge.' "'Beware of what you are about, gentlemen,' said a clear voice, which seemed accustomed to command. "'It is some superior officer making his night rounds,' said Athos. "'What do you wish, gentlemen?' "'Who are you?' said the same voice, in the same commanding tone. "'Answer in your turn, or you may repent of your disobedience.' "'King's musketeers,' said Athos, more and more convinced that he who interrogated them had the right to do so. "'What company?' "'Company of Treville. "'Advance, and give an account of what you are doing here at this hour.' The three companions advanced rather humbly, for all were now convinced that they had to do with someone more powerful than themselves, leaving Athos the post of speaker. One of the two riders, he who had spoken second, was ten paces in front of his companion. Athos made a sign to Porthos and Aramis also to remain in the rear, and advanced alone. "'Your pardon, my officer,' said Athos, "'but we were ignorant with whom we had to do, and you may see that we were keeping good guard.' "'Your name,' said the officer, who covered a part of his face with his cloak. "'But yourself, monsieur,' said Athos, who began to be annoyed by this inquisition. "'Give me, I beg you, the proof that you have the right to question me.' "'Your name?' repeated the cavalier a second time, letting his cloak fall and leaving his face uncovered. "'Monsieur the Cardinal!' cried the stupefied musketeer. "'Your name!' cried his eminence for the third time. "'Athos!' said the musketeer. The Cardinal made a sign to his attendant, who drew near. "'These three musketeers shall follow us,' said he in an undertone. "'I am not willing it should be known I have left the camp, 
and if they follow us, we shall be certain they will tell nobody. "'We are gentlemen, Monseigneur,' said Athos. "'Require our parole and give yourself no uneasiness. Thank God we can keep a secret.' The cardinal fixed his piercing eyes on this courageous speaker. "'You have a quick ear, Monsieur Athos,' said the cardinal. "'But now listen to this.' It is not from mistrust that I request you to follow me, but for my security. Your companions are no doubt Messieurs Porthos and Aramis. Yes, your eminence, said Athos, while the two musketeers who had remained behind advanced hat in hand. I know you, gentlemen, said the cardinal. I know you. I know you are not quite my friends, and I am sorry you are not so. But I know you are brave and loyal, gentlemen and that confidence may be placed in you. Monsieur Athos, do me, then, the honour to accompany me, you and your two friends, and then I shall have an escort to excite envy in His Majesty, if we should meet him. The three musketeers bowed to the necks of their horses. Well, upon my honour, said Athos, your eminence is right in taking us with you. We have seen several ill-looking faces on the road, and we have even had a quarrel at the Red Dovecote with four of these faces. "'A quarrel? And what for, gentlemen?' said the cardinal. "'You know I don't like quarrellers. And that is the reason why I have the honour to inform your eminence of what has happened, for you might learn it from others, and upon a false account believe us to be in fault.' "'What have been the results of your quarrel?' said the cardinal, knitting his brow. My friend Aramis here has received a slight sword-wound in his arm, but not enough to prevent him, as your eminence may see, from mounting to the assault to-morrow, if your eminence orders an escalade. "'But you are not the men to allow sword-wounds to be inflicted upon you thus,' said the cardinal. "'Come, be frank, gentlemen. You have settled accounts with somebody. Confess, you know I have the right of giving absolution.' "'I, Monseigneur,' said Athos, "'I did not even draw my sword, but I took him who offended me round the body and threw him out of the window. It appears that in falling,' continued Athos, with some hesitation, "'he broke his thigh.' "'Ah! Ah!' said the Cardinal. "'And you, Monsieur Porthos?' "'I, Monseigneur, know that dueling is prohibited.' I seized a bench, and gave one of those brigands such a blow that I believe his shoulder is broken. "'Very well,' said the cardinal. "'And you, Monsieur Aramis?' Monseigneur, being of a very mild disposition, and being likewise, of which Monseigneur perhaps is not aware, about to enter into orders, I endeavoured to appease my comrades when one of these wretches gave me a wound with a sword— treacherously across my left arm then i admit my patience failed me i drew my sword in my turn and as he came back to the charge i fancied i felt that in throwing himself upon me he let it pass through his body i only know for a certainty that he fell and it seemed to me that he was borne away with his two companions the devil gentlemen said the cardinal Three men place hors de combat in a cabaret squabble. You don't do your work by halves. And pray, what was this quarrel about?' "'These fellows were drunk,' said Athos, 
and knowing there was a lady who had arrived at the cabaret this evening, they wanted to force her door. "'Force her door,' said the cardinal. "'And for what purpose?' "'To do her violence, without doubt,' said Athos. "'I have had the honour of informing your eminence that these men were drunk.' "'And was this lady young and handsome?' asked the cardinal, with a certain degree of anxiety. "'We did not see her, Monseigneur,' said Athos. "'You did not see her? Ah, very well,' replied the cardinal quickly. "'You did well to defend the honour of a woman, and as I am going to the red dovecote myself, I shall know if you have told me the truth.' "'Monseigneur,' said Athos haughtily, "'we are gentlemen, and to save our heads we would not be guilty of a falsehood.' therefore i do not doubt what you say monsieur athos i do not doubt it for a single instant but added he to change the conversation was this lady alone the lady had a cavalier shut up with her said athos but as notwithstanding the noise this cavalier did not show himself it is to be presumed that he is a coward judge not rashly says the gospel replied the cardinal Athos bowed. "'And now, gentlemen, that's well,' continued the cardinal. "'I know what I wish to know. Follow me.' The three musketeers passed behind his eminence, who again enveloped his face in his cloak, and put his horse in motion, keeping from eight to ten paces in advance of his four companions. They soon arrived at the silent, solitary inn. No doubt the host knew what illustrious visitor was expected, and had consequently sent intruders out of the way. Ten paces from the door, the cardinal made a sign to his esquire and the three musketeers to halt. A saddled horse was fastened to the window-shutter. The cardinal knocked three times, and in a peculiar manner. A man, enveloped in a cloak, came out immediately, and exchanged some rapid words with the cardinal, after which he mounted his horse and set off in the direction of Surgere, which was likewise the way to Paris. "'Advance, gentlemen,' said the cardinal. "'You have told me the truth, my gentlemen,' said he, addressing the musketeers, "'and it will not be my fault if our encounter this evening be not advantageous to you. In the meantime, follow me.' The cardinal alighted, the three musketeers did likewise. The cardinal threw the bridle of his horse to his esquire, the three musketeers fastened the horses to the shutters. The host stood at the door. For him, the cardinal was only an officer coming to visit a lady. "'Have you any chamber on the ground floor where these gentlemen can wait near a good fire?' said the cardinal. The host opened the door of a large room in which an old stove had just been replaced by a large and excellent chimney. "'I have this,' said he. "'That will do,' replied the cardinal. "'Enter, gentlemen, and be kind enough to wait for me. I shall not be more than half an hour.' And while the three musketeers entered the ground-floor room, the cardinal, without asking further information, ascended the staircase like a man who has no need of having his road pointed out to him. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.